WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 329. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, the view from our side of the cockpit door. I'm Captain Jeff, your host, broadcasting live from APG Headquarters Studios in a northern Atlanta suburb. Today's show was recorded on the 19th of June, 2018. Today's episode, a super jumbo wake turbulence encounter, wing skin cracks detected on wingtip equipped 767s, a mad dog runway excursion in Ukraine, more news, your feedback, and this week's plane tale on Wings of Gossamer. So get all settled in, tray tables and seat backs in their upright and locked positions, electronic devices powered on. Flight 329 is ready for pushback. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, an aviation podcast. I'm Captain Jeff. I fly for a major U.S. legacy carrier. And joining me today from her beautiful lakeside home in South Carolina, a doctor, skydiver, marathon runner, strength training junkie, IPA connoisseur, and commercial multi-engine instrument rated pilot, Dr. Stuff. Hey, Captain Jeff. Glad I could finally join you guys. I'm sorry for the slow start this afternoon, but looking forward to hanging out with you guys and kind of turning the afternoon around for me, at least. Ain't no big thing. We're just happy that you're here with us. And also joining us from his new recording studio outside of London, a professional photographer, a former RAF RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, Captain Nick. Hi there, Jeff. Hi, Steph. And I see a, a gentleman in a Panama yet to arrive. Um, lovely to be back on the show. Thank you very much indeed. From a slightly warmer, sticky uh, um, English countryside uh, house, uh, windows are open. So if you hear the birds tweeting, or actually by the time we finish, it's more likely to be the bats squeaking. I do apologize. Hey, it's all part of the ambiance. Speaking of ambiance, we have the ambiance of a big motorcycle revving up because from his stately southern mansion in Smyrna, Georgia, we have a barbecue master, bourbon connoisseur, motorcycle riding pontoon boat skipper, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. My God, could you have anything more in the introduction for me? It's great to be back on another episode here on EPG. And uh, going to be another fun day, afternoon, evening, whatever you want to call it. Awesome. We're looking forward to it. Hello, everyone. And again, welcome to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. As I mentioned, an aviation podcast. Many of them out there. Ours a little bit different. Uh, well, they're all different. And that's what makes this aviation podcasting world such a wonderful place. And speaking of aviation podcasting. Uh, several aviation podcasters were present this past weekend in uh, the uh, Dulles International Airport area, actually in Chantilly, Virginia, at the Udverhazi Smithsonian 
Air and Space Museum, and they had their annual Innovations in Flight Day, Family Day, and uh, Mike Carrolls, who is the host of Flying and Life, uh, asked, and I mentioned this uh, on a previous show, asked if I was interested in being his co-pilot, riding with him up in his Beechcraft Musketeer, and it's a 1963 Musketeer, and it's a, a great little airplane, and I said, heck yeah, and so I drove down to Noonan, Georgia, Coweta County Airport, and uh, we were going to set off at about 8 o'clock, I think was the scheduled takeoff time. That's right, we talked about it last show. In fact, uh, Mike uh, created a, a a trip rotation for our trip, and so we're driving down, and Mike tells me now, after I've left the house and I've already gotten my coffee and I'm probably a, a half an hour into the trip, no hurry because the weather is basically, you know, low visibility IFR. And I'm thinking, what? I'm looking around where I am driving, and it's a beautiful day. I can see blue sky and everything else. So the further I get to the south, just south of the Atlanta International Airport, uh, everything starts getting cloudy and then overcast and then basically just ob- obscured. Uh, weather down at the Noonan Coweta County Airport was a uh, 300 and a half. Now, one of those interesting things is that uh, Mike is an IFR rated pilot. I'm an IFR rated pilot. And the airplane's not IFR equipped or certified or whatever it takes to become an IFR certified airplane. So we had to wait for the, uh, for the weather to burn off. And uh, about two hours later, we were finally in the air and on our way up to uh, the first leg was uh, Noonan to Martinsville, uh, Virginia. And uh, that was kind of a neat little airport that we uh, stopped at to uh, refuel the tanks and uh, both the airplane and the, uh, and the human tanks. Uh, they had a nice little restaurant there and we grabbed some stuff to go because we were a little bit behind. See, Mike had to meet certain windows, uh, arrival windows at uh, Dulles International, because uh, a lot of big airplanes flying in and out of that airport, and they were trying to find a couple uh, periods, uh, lull periods during the day on Friday for all the folks to arrive. And so we just grabbed our sandwiches, and and, uh, (laughs) I made the mistake of getting uh, pulled pork. I saw the pulled pork on the menu, and I'm thinking, ooh, it's probably like that North Carolina pulled pork where you just really have either no sauce or very light sauce. Mm-hmm. I thought that it's shouldn't be too busy. Too. Nice on a nice sandwich. Easy yeah. To contain. Well, then I remember that I was not in North Carolina. I was in Virginia. And uh, I don't know if it's a Virginia thing or just the little airport uh, restaurant there thing. But they just slapped and slathered all kinds of red barbecue sauce on it. And it was messy, <laughs> really messy. So uh, I... Uh, Managed to eat it without um, messing myself up too badly. But uh, Mike was smart. He got a, uh, a club sandwich. And uh, we continued up from there and uh, entered the, um, uh, the special procedures of FRZ, I think they call it. And I, he called it a couple of other things. But I guess you have to have prior permission to, to get up there in uh, the airspace around the Washington, D.C. area. And uh, the approach controller at Dulles said, uh, okay, what kind of speed can we expect from you today? And uh, he says, yeah, you're going to get about 100 knots. <laughs> and so he goes, okay, turn right heading 130 degrees. And uh, so we went, you know, 90 degrees from our track to the uh, 
Dulles International Airport. Did that for about 20 miles. And then they finally brought us back around, kept us on the uh, west side for runway one left, and uh, brought all the other jet traffic into one center and one right, and kept us uh, kept them out of our way, or actually kept us out of their way, probably be more accurate. And uh, anyway, so it was a lot of fun. Uh, I've been to Dulles International a bunch of times, and but I've never been in, a, in an airplane like that, and that was interesting. Uh, but uh, we had a had a great time. So we uh, landed, taxied across the airport over to Signature, uh, the FBO, and then uh, parked the airplane there overnight. Went over to uh, Mike's in-laws' house, Juan and uh, Gloria, and uh, Fernandez, the Casa de Fernandez, and had a, a nice uh, nice meal and several people from the um, aviation BFFs. You know who I'm talking about. Uh, showed up for uh, a nice uh, dinner and uh, a nice evening. And then the next day we were at the Udvarhazi Center, met up with a bunch of great people. And uh, Mike pretty much stayed mostly outside with his airplane because his airplane was on static display. And uh, I kind of hung out kind of half and half outside, inside, and uh, got to hang out with the airplane geeks and uh, a whole bunch of uh, APGers and... uh, we had a grand time. And then after the whole thing was over, we went over to Red Robin. And uh, that's where the airplane geeks always hold their meetup after the event. And so we went over there and ate some more and drank some more and uh, had a had more of a good time. And then uh, that was pretty much it. Went back over to the uh, Mike's in-laws for another wonderful accommodation, a nice um a nice evening of sleep and then got up early the next morning and then flew back from uh, Dulles International this time going down to we were going to try to uh, rendezvous with you Dr. Steph at uh, Greenville downtown and then no not there no no where that's what Mike told me well I don't know why he was thinking that because I wasn't anywhere near Greenville downtown oh because I spent the weekend in Raleigh Oh, what what was your suggestion? I had I had other suggestions. I had suggestions of Lexington, North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Um, Concord would not have been a good place to stop because of fuel prices. But um, basically, I was driving back from Raleigh to home at the same time you guys were going to be flying. Oh, I thought you were going to meet us somewhere flying somewhere. No. Oh, see, well, you were you were doing all the communication with Mike, so I had no yes. idea what was going on. So Mike maybe he t- misunderstood. That he too. must have because sure. he t- he <laughs> he uh, he he let me know when we were heading down that in his mind, Greenville downtown or Greenville was on the other side of Charlotte. Yeah, because I was I was really confused when I was texting with him. I was like, okay, I guess if that's easier for you guys to go there. Have a good time. Yeah, we were saying something like uh, something about the fuel and everything else, and and uh, I, I don't know, but whatever. Because um, I was going to try and make it work out where you guys would be, because Lexington is right off the the airport for Lexington, North Carolina is right off um, I forty or eighty five. I forget it's eighty five at that point. I'm sorry, uh-huh. I eighty five, and it would have been perfect between um, between uh, Greensboro and Charlotte. Yeah, yeah, that would have worked out well. Uh, we were mm-hmm. a little bit further to the north, I believe, but we could have made a little bit more southerly track. Yeah, you probably would have gone a little bit further west, but <laughs> just looking at fuel prices, it would have been a good option for you guys. Well, was my was yeah. my thought. 
Oh, well. That's okay. Didn't get, and we wouldn't have been able to really hang out very long anyway. So we, we ended up going to Greenville downtown when ate at that uh, little restaurant there. Yes. Uh, you know it uh, because you've eaten there before. We've met there before at the Greenville downtown airport. And then, again, more fuel and uh, headed to Noonan and got in before the thunderstorm started breaking out in the afternoon. So it was a good timing for weather anyway. And uh, it was great. Anyway, just a really great weekend. So um, I'm sure there's much more to be said, but I'm sure Mike will talk about it on his podcast. But uh, really enjoyed. I'm, I'm really thankful that uh, Mike asked me to, to be his co-pilot. And just that kind of flying is so different from the kind of flying that I'm used to. Uh, that uh, it's, But I enjoyed it. I didn't mind going low and slow. It was a lot of fun. All right. And that is basically, you know, I, I had a trip earlier in the week, but I think that was, uh, we recorded on Thursday. So since we recorded Thursday night, basically the only thing I've done is the um, the flight up and back and the day at uh, Udverhazi up in Washington. And yeah, I did a little overnight uh, sun, uh, Monday, uh, yesterday, overnight in Pensacola and then back this morning. So that's it. Good job, Jeff. I was uh, just listening to you say low and slow, mm-hmm. and uh, I was for a second I thought you were talking about the show. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think <laughs> if, it, um, if the shoe fits. Yeah, right <laughs> on the hat. Yeah, 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 definitely. That looks a nice ale. What have you got tonight? I have a um, torpedo extra IPA mm-hmm. from Sierra, Sierra Nevada. Nevada. Okay. Not the not a depth charge. Brewed in North Carolina. Nope, no depth charge. Now, um, Captain Rick Bell was drinking something interesting at the Red Robin. He had something called a. Well, I'm not sure what he called it. It was a. It was some kind of a, a high octane um, a, a liquor called Fireball, and uh, that he fireball. put inside of the um, some cider. I've not had one. You've never had Fireball. No, that's my first oh, time. My. It's like a cinnamony uh, kind of flavor. Yeah, Fireball is it, it, um, Jack Daniels puts out Jack Daniels Fire, which is much better, smoother, but mm-hmm. it's the same thing. It's a cinnamon liqueur. Uh, it's very, very popular these days. It's excellent. Yeah, when you put it into um, uh, an apple cider, a hard cider, it's really good and refreshing. Um, oh yeah, I forgot to mention. Uh, thank you, Liz. When we were heading up to that uh, during that first leg on Friday between Noonan and Martinsville, we uh, went through the uh, airspace that uh, RH and AG work in North Carolina. I think I'm allowed to say North Carolina or somewhere in that area of the country. And they, uh, they work at Triad. Triad, yes. And uh, yeah, that, that's a Chinese uh, uh, mafia organization well i'm, I'm, I'm not i didn't that. ask any questions you know fair enough okay fair enough. and uh so we checked in with um uh, greensboro approach i believe or triad approach excuse me and uh we uh, and uh the guy answered and and we neither of us recognized him as ag <laughs> and, and mike goes so is ag working today and he goes yep this is he. <laughs> went, oh, <laughs> sounds completely different on the uh, on the aviation uh, radio. Well, it's probably because he wasn't flying his helicopter. <laughs> well, I don't think I've ever heard him like that either. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so it was nice to uh, kind of uh, 
talk with him for a bit as we kind of transited the north uh, western part of his uh, of his airspace. So that was fun. Cool. Tried to contact him again out of uh, Martinsville, but I think we were a little bit too far north. We tried a couple times, yeah. but I think they talk about it a little bit at the start of their most recent uh, episode of their podcast. Oh, did they just put one out? Opposing bases. Uh huh. Oh, cool. Yep. Neat. All right. Uh, so anyway, sorry we weren't able to stop at Triad to uh, get some gas, but uh, Mike had flight planned us in a in a different manner. So I was just along for the ride. So I didn't do any of the flight planning or fuel planning or anything, really. Just uh, Did you fly? I did. He actually let me touch the controls. I flew about half the wow. time. Yeah. So enough of that. Uh, Dana, what have you been up to? Nothing. Okay. Nick, what have you been up to? <laughs> <laughs> actually, I was going to come up to the uh, air show and uh, meet up with you guys. Checked out the flights. Uh, had looked at hotel options. And then uh, shortly before um, I had spoke to Jeff on Friday, was it Friday? No, Thursday afternoon, right? No, mm-hmm. oh, no, it was Friday. Yeah. Well, it was it was Thursday we recorded the show. Yeah, it's Thursday when we did the, the show. Yeah. I'm getting all my days mixed up. Um, just before we went on air, my you know, one of my my close buddies, he had uh, just come home for vacation and found out his company laid him off. So he was not in a very good frame of mind, and uh, so I told him, you know, I'll be happy to stay behind and hang out with him for the weekend. Of course, that meant uh, he was camping up at the lake and uh, was uh, without his significant other because she had her son come in town for a volleyball tournament, so he didn't want to be alone. So I uh, went up and hung out with him because he was kind of lonely. So I took on that responsibility and uh, spent uh, Father's Day out in the lake with uh, a boat full of people. So uh, I was going to plan. I was planning on doing that regardless because I was going to take the first flight home on Sunday, anyways. Um, so I got to you know do a little R and R and spend some time with my with my buddy. And I really missed out on that uh, air show up at the uh, Uga. I can never say it. Udvar. Udvar Hazi. Udvar Hazi. Uva Hazi. That's close enough. Uva Hazi. <laughs> Innovations so, uh, in flight. That's easier. Innovations in flight yeah. at the uh, Smithsonian. I really would have enjoyed that. And uh, sad that didn't happen, but uh, well, sometimes other responsibilities. As far as flying goes, uh, yeah, Jeff keeps on taking all my flying, folks. Just hate to tell you. Yeah. He white slipped yesterday. Uh, yeah, yeah. So I have not been to work. Well, I shouldn't say that. I am technically working right now. I am on 24-hour call-out. So 24 hours a day, they can call me with a 12-hour window at this point. Which what that means is that uh, they call me, let's see, it's East Coast time. It's just about 5 o'clock. So the earliest they give me is a 5 a.m. departure tomorrow morning. So that's what that means. Haven't seen any short call yet. Uh, Short call is a two-hour call-out. So last week, they didn't utilize that with me. And this week so far, right? Haven't I checked earlier, but they haven't put me on for tomorrow. But so far this week, no short call, which would be just a two-hour call up. So I've been uh, very, uh, uh, very proactive around the house, getting the chores done, uh, doing laundry, cleaning. Give people tours around the house. That's what I thought he said too. I think I think what he said it was <laughs> chores. chores, 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 chores. That's very Boston. So, um, yeah, I, uh, 
Yeah, so that's what my week's been like. So I'm going to kind of shut up now because there's nothing really going on. I'm hoping I'm going to get to fly. But it looks like the first time I'm going to get to fly is over J- July 4th, I'm, I'm afraid to say. But that's okay. Yeah, it's I, usually I, pretty it, quiet, though, over July 4th. So maybe. Well, there's okay. a lot of, a lot of open time. Oh. And uh, I chose not to bid July 4th off because it's well right in the middle of the week. So I wasn't going to screw up my whole entire month, especially having the chance to go over to England for the Farnborough Air Show. I wasn't going to screw up the whole weekend for one day. A whole month for one day. Yeah. So I, I'm i working. Oh, well. Yeah. It'll be fun. It will be. Because I want to come see all my peep, peeps in England and Farnborough as long as the, the flights cooperate. Yeah, they'll be fine. Um, let's see. You don't know my luck. <laughs> uh, Steph, how's your few, last few days been going? Uh, Good. Like uh, Dana, I was kind of Disappointed a little bit that I couldn't make it up there for innovations in flight. Um, but I had a great weekend nonetheless. I had other things planned, other family stuff to do. And like I said, we were out in Raleigh for some of that. And it was kind of a nice little getaway, even if it wasn't up there with you guys. And uh, yeah, just relaxing time with family over Father's Day. And now catching up with you guys again. The only thing that was aviation related was possibly meeting up with you and Dispatcher Mike. And since you all... Blew me off on that one. Yeah. Uh-huh. Sorry. I really <laughs> had no idea. I just thought you were flying your airplane somewhere to meet us. So. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. yeah. Uh, did uh, Mike have a good Father's Day? He did. Yes. Good. As far as I know. I should ask him maybe. Yeah. <laughs> that might help. Uh, all right. Uh, Captain Nick, how about you, sir? Yes, sir. Been doing uh, anything nothing interesting? Nothing much happening except I d- have been... Finally, to see um, the diabetic specialist who has to assess me um, prior to getting my uh, medical back. Uh, He was very happy. So uh, once I've had his report, I'm going to fire that off to my uh, AME, my aeromedical examiner. He will forward it to uh, the Belgrano, um, which is what we nickname the Civil Aviation Authority. And um, uh, they will churn their wheels, and eventually, I'm sure I'll get a reply um, with a decision. So, just waiting for sort of the you know the final bits of paperwork and stuff. In the meantime, I'm heading off down to uh, the lovely southwest to Cornwall. Um, Jilly has rented a sweet-looking um, uh, sort of hut on the beach down there. So we're taking the dogs down there. We're going to uh, put our feet up for a week, uh, enjoy what hopefully will be some nice weather, uh, and um, relax. Uh, so I'm not expecting uh, any internet connection worth its salt. So uh, uh, you can probably uh, go ahead without me next week. I'm sure you can manage. We'll do our best. Yeah, I know it'll be a struggle. Yes. <laughs> Why, says Jeff. <laughs> no, no, we'll we'll miss you for sure. I'm but, counting uh, seconds. At least we <laughs> we have a uh, a plane tail though that we'll be able to play. So, we'll... oh yeah, that was a fun one to do that, and that wasn't actually this this today's was a fun one. The, <laughs> the next one is a little bit on the depressing side. Oh. If you're a pilot, well, thanks for leaving with us with, with, with something depressing while you're <laughs> gone. <laughs> so, so, so you won't miss me. That's right. We'll we'll remember you. Yeah. yeah, quite fondly. Ah, <laughs> yeah. depressing plane tail. Yeah. Just oh like, yeah, Nick, depressing. Yeah. <laughs> just kidding, of course. 
Gonna pop my volume now. Yeah. All right. Well, no, I don't take value. I think that should do it for our intro section here. So, without further ado. Johnny, how much more coffee? No thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. Well, the reason why the Jeff Smith is singing the Java Jive is because we're going to talk about the coffee fun. It's your way to... Support the show financially if you have the resources to do so. And uh, since the last show, using the Coffee Fund Classic Method, Chris Randall. And uh, the other way to do it is uh, to become a patron of the show via patreon.com. And since the last show, we have a couple folks that are new producers. Nick Herring and Richard Popham. And... uh, Oh, wow. Wait a minute. A big fanfare. And the reason why we play this big fanfare is because a couple different levels of patronage at Patreon. And the very top level is $20 or more per episode. And for the longest time, we had two gentlemen in that upper realm, and now they are joined by the new senior executive producer, Rodrigo Pacheco, or either that or Pacheco, Pacheco, not sure. Anyway, Rodrigo, send us some audio feedback and let us know how to pronounce it. Thank you very much. Mr. Pacheco or Pacheco for becoming a new patron of the Airline Pilot Guy show, King of the Coffee Fun Cadre. All right, that's enough then. All right, so if you want to join the Coffee Fun Cadre, along with all of the other great folks out there who uh, are contributing to the show, head over to airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Uh, One of the benefits of being a patron of the show is that you get the periodic crew logs, kind of little uh, background information, a little bit more in-depth information via audio files. And uh, so I think it's it's a nice little thing to have as a contributor to the show. So again, airlinepilotguy.com slash coffee. Thanks for your contributions. Let's start off with the first item in the news folder. Qantas chief pilot denies passengers were at risk during QF-94 wake turbulence drama. Qantas's chief pilot has hit back after 
a wake turbulence event that left terrified passengers fearing for their lives on a flight from Los Angeles to Melbourne. Passengers on Qantas flight QF-94 on Sunday said the A380 aircraft experienced a sudden free-fall nosedive over the Pacific Ocean that lasted about 10 seconds. It's terrifying. All of a sudden, quoting the uh, passenger Janelle Wilson, all of a sudden the plane went through a violent turbulence and then completely upended and we were nosediving. Hmm. Another quote, we were all lifted from our seats immediately and we were in a free fall. The lady sitting next to me and I screamed and held hands and just waited, but thought with absolute certainty that we were going to crash. It was terrifying. There we go. There's the terrifying. No one on board the A380 was injured. The event was attributed to wake turbulence caused by another Qantas A380 that took off just two minutes earlier and flew above it. But in a statement on Friday, Qantas chief pilot Captain Richard Tabiano denied the plane had plunged, quote, unquote, and said turbulence was not as dangerous as passengers thought. The recent reports on QF94 show that the turbulence is probably show that turbulence is probably one of the most misunderstood elements of flying, Mr. Tabiano said. For pilots, it's a an everyday part of our job and nothing to fear. Aircraft are engineered to deal with levels of turbulence well beyond anything you'd realistically encounter. But we're conscious that turbulence can put passengers on edge, especially if it's a sudden jolt. And because it is misunderstood, those jolts can be wrongly perceived as a plunge or massive drop. Mr. Tabiano said some of the common causes of turbulence included sudden changes in wind direction or speed, large and dense clouds, and wake turbulence, which is what QF-94 experienced. He said large jet aircraft like A380s and Boeing 747s uh, disturb the air behind them. Actually, all airplanes disturb the air behind them to some extent, uh, creating mid-air conditions similar to the wash from a boat. It's uncommon, but that disturbed air can cause bumps for nearby aircraft, even if they are a significant distance away. QF-94 was about 37 kilometers behind and 1,000 feet below the other Qantas A380 when it encountered some disturbed air. The two aircraft were well aware of each other, but wake turbulence can be hard to predict and often arises a sudden jolt when you're otherwise flying smoothly. The turbulence lasted for about 10 seconds and caused the nose of the aircraft to pitch up slightly. The plunge that a few passengers have described was actually the A380 immediately returning itself to a steady state. Mr. Tamiano said, Taviano said aircraft were designed to fly level, and if turbulence disturbed in an aircraft, it would adjust, including returning to the right attitude, altitude. QF-94 performed exactly as it was supposed to in the scenario, and so did its highly trained crew. The total movement in pitch was about three degrees, he said. The captain knew how this would have felt to passengers, so he made an announcement to explain what happened and why it wasn't cause for concern. The rest of the flight was uneventful. He said a lot of effort went into avoiding turbulence, including the use of detailed weather reports and weather radar, communication between pilots flying the same corridor, and spacing between aircraft. Turbulence can be unexpected and uncomfortable, but provided you have your seatbelt on whenever you're seated, it's not something to fear, the pilot said. Um, so, uh, that 37 uh, kilometers, I think is about 20 miles. So, this is the question that I have for you, Captain Nick, because you do a lot of the long haul flying yes, sir. and you fly in a large airplane. Um, an A380 is 20 miles ahead of you and you're 1,000 
feet below their altitude. Does, and I mean, you're directly behind them. Is that cause for concern or maybe thinking, I don't know if this is a good place for me to be? I mean, I, well, I'm going to let you answer and then I'll say what I'm going to say. Uh, the answer is no, it's not. I mean, uh, the, the height we're given, a thousand feet, should be completely adequate to avoid uh, wake turbulence, uh, regardless of where the um, preceding aircraft is. Now, at 20 miles, uh, quite hard to see. Um, if he's uh, putting a bit of chemtrail out the back, then uh, there's, you could uh, see that. And if you if it's coming down all the way to your level, which is unlikely, normally descend more than about 500 feet behind an aircraft. Uh, then you can uh, just take a little offset and avoid it. Um, but uh, normally a 1,000 feet should be perfectly adequate to uh, avoid any wake. And anyway, by 20 miles, it should be pretty mild, even if you do encounter it. Um, so, uh, no, I wouldn't be concerned. If I thought there was going to be a problem, obviously I'd put the belts on and uh, get air traffic's permission just to offset a little bit. Or if I thought it was going to be a big problem, I'd just offset and then seek permit, uh, permission afterwards. But um, this, this this was not a significant event, from what I can tell. Um, the aircraft will be in a soft cruise, uh, Airbus, uh, um, in order to stop the aircraft um, at autopilot from making um, firm maneuvers in the cruise. Uh, it will react gently to any disturbances. So the fact that the aircraft rose 100 feet, a little bit of a pitch change, uh, is not significant. It would normally go up and down at least 50 feet uh, in the soft cruise. Just gently maintaining its, its height, 100 feet, is not exceptional. Uh, the captain obviously didn't think this was uh, anything out of the ordinary otherwise he would have uh, written a safety report which he didn't he had to do it afterwards uh, in response to passenger comments which i think were mainly because um, passengers decided to contact a newspaper now i don't know if there was a reporter on board perhaps there was you think you think? Quiet I thought that's the- how this ended up in the news in the first place. <laughs> yep, quiet day on the news, I think. The reason why I asked is because if I were in my little airplane 20 miles behind and only 1,000 feet below a 380 or any large airplane, 747, even an A340-600, I would be thinking about where that turbulence was going and what the wind um, you know, direction was and... You know, maybe thinking about uh, some kind of an offset to prevent that from happening. Because to me, yeah, that's just it, like making the hair on the back of my neck stand. If uh, it's if it's very clear air, uh, mm-hmm. you you've got to be absolutely on it to hit it because they're actually not vast bits of kit. So, a hundred feet one way side or the other, and you'll miss it. Um, so, by offsetting, you might actually fly through it because uh, it might be just sitting to the right of you. And, and because there's, uh, you know, you're in a bit of a um, jet stream up there that's moving that wake turbulence to one side. You look at it and him and go, well, I look like I'm straight behind him. I'll just offset, offset a little to the right to be on the safe side. And as you do that, you actually just fly into the wake. I mean, it's unless you can see where it is, it's impossible to know. Yeah. But I'm sure that uh, the folks that uh, were 
claiming that this was terrifying and they thought they were going to die and that nosedived and all that kind of stuff were well, way re- overreacting. I mean, the aircraft climbed uh, gently. It climbed 100 feet. It didn't nosedive at all by the looks of it. No. Uh, it, Three it degrees, that's not a around a bit. <laughs> Yeah, it might have jolted around a little bit. Um, But, of course, you have to make account for the fact that people uh, who can't see what's happening outside, they can only rely on the, you know, uh, seat of their pants and what's happening uh, in their inner ear. And it's a notoriously um, inaccurate gauge of what's happening when you're in an aircraft. It's fine if you're standing up on the Earth's surface. That's what it's designed for. Once you're flying around, subjected to all the... Uh, little nuances that uh, you can't detect properly, uh, then it, you know, it's um, you know, it's not a reliable way to work out what's happening to the airplane. And these would be people who are not, in fact, actually looking out their windows, but perhaps watching, you know, the in-flight window. screen. In front what's a, what's window? a window? window? Exactly. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they probably had no idea. I can imagine, you know, if you're not ready for something like that, and then all of a sudden the airplane's doing some weird motions you know it might be a little oh, sure, terrifying especially all... for somebody that's not you know, maybe doesn't fly very much exactly we've all had the experience i think of sitting on an aircraft next to someone who does not fly very often and perhaps encountering just a little bit of turbulence that it's you know it gets their attention yeah everything is sensationalized i mean people that are not on just as dr Seth said people are not on airplanes very often don't know uh and i'm sure the frequent flyers on the airplane that were on that aircraft were like, okay, yeah, a little bit of a little bit of turbulence here, no big deal. So uh, people have a tendency of blowing everything out of proportion as usual. Yep. Well, okay. So it's pretty much a non-story. I'm sorry I put it in the news folder. <laughs> well, it's, it's an interesting one because it just uh, shows how people perceive something that is not really happening uh, and how quickly it can blow up in your face. Because we've here we've got the chief pilot of Qantas having to waste his time trying to ex- yeah. explain to these people how it was a non-event. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and presumably the captain of the aircraft had to explain himself to the chief pilot. Yeah. Uh, which all of which is just, you know, you go, I'd rather just get on with my job, please. Yeah. And it must have not been too bad because uh, there were no reports of injuries. And I'm sure that the flight attendants were up and walking about and uh, none of them were injured, apparently. So, you know, uh, a big yep. non-story. Exactly. Yeah, I think you, you're absolutely right, Jeff. If somebody if, in fact, uh, it was something of of big scale that could have hurt somebody, flight attendants in the back certainly would have been hurt or somebody in the back would have been actually hurt. Because when you go through something like that, you get a lot of positive, negative G that goes with it. Yep. Something major. That was not major, clearly. Nope. All right. Next in the docket on the uh, in the news folder, we have something uh, from the National Transportation Safety Board. Actually, this is where was this from? Um, Catherine's, Catherine's report. report. That's right. Catherine's report. Uh, there was, this is an incident. I'm going to go ahead and just, uh, paraphrase or summarize, uh, the, uh, the incident, uh, this happened in Bentonville, uh, Arkansas. Well, it's probably better if I read it. A flight con- was conducted under part 91 general aviation on August 31st, 2016, about nine 30 in the morning, central time, a uh, beach, a three, a 36, November 8283 Delta was destroyed when it impacted a hangar during an attempted takeoff from one runway 18 at the Bentonville Municipal Airport. 
VBT, Bentonville, Arkansas. The pilot, who was the sole occupant of the plane, was fatally injured. The airplane was destroyed by impact forces and a post-impact explosion and fire. The airplane was registered to and operated by the pilot under the provisions of Title 14 Code of Federal Regulations Part 91 as a personal flight. Visual Meteorological Conditions, VMC, prevailed for the flight, which was not on a flight plan. The flight was originating at the time of the accident and was destined for the Springdale Municipal Airport in Springdale, Arkansas. The pilot of another airplane reported that while approaching VBT, the flight was authorized by approach control to change to the VBT Common Traffic Advisory Frequency, CTAF. He stated that after the frequency change, he transmitted his intent to land on runway 36 over the CTAF. The pilot stated that the approach controller advised him that no traffic was observed at VBT, and the pilot heard no radio transmissions from other aircraft during the landing approach. After landing on the first one-third of runway 36, he noted another airplane, the accident airplane, at the end of runway 18, initiating a takeoff. The pilot transmitted over the CTAF that he was on the runway, but the accident airplane continued the takeoff. Shortly thereafter, the accident airplane appeared to add more power and rolled left over the grass. The accident airplane became airborne, pitched nose up, then nose down twice before rolling left and impacting a hangar. Surveillance video from VBT showed the other airplane during its landing roll on runway 36. The accident airplane could be seen taking off from runway 18 when it abruptly veered to the left, to the east. The accident airplane crossed the unpaved ground between the runway and the airport ramp, became airborne, and traveled out of the frame of the video. The footage did not capture the impact with the hangar, but did show the explosion of impact and a post-crash fire. I don't know if you guys had a chance to look at the video, but you should. It's pretty dramatic. It's pretty horrific. Yeah. Um, So this guy uh, in the accident aircraft, the beach, was a 70-year-old pilot, had a private pilot certificate with airplane single engine and multi-engine land ratings. And uh, let's see, his last uh, medical was good. He said he wasn't taking any medication. And uh, a post-crash autopsy uh, toxology report found that he was taking something. Now, Steph, maybe you can help me with this. Um, where is that in the article? I should have. Uh, Hold on, I'm searching for violated. it. Too. Uh, it's like a Tamazepam. Tamazepam. Yeah, tamazepam. I, used, I used to take that when I was in the Air Force. Okay. Um, During exercises, if we. Yeah, you take it for. Usually for sleep insomnia. Yeah. Yeah, that's what he was taking it for. Uh, sleeping pill. A sedative intended for the short-term treatment of insomnia. A common name for it is Restoril. Mm-hmm. Uh, the package information carries warnings, including you may still feel drowsy the next day after taking Tamazepam. Yeah, it's a benzodiazepine, so it, it can certainly cause drowsiness. Okay, so I don't know if that had anything to do with it or not, but they felt it was necessary to talk about that. I guess they were probably required to. Um, but uh, the whole point of this thing is to kind of point out again the importance of communication and i don't know if the guy in the beachcraft the accident aircraft uh just either didn't have his radio on or had the radio on and maybe the wrong frequency dialed up or maybe the radio on frequency uh dialed in and maybe the volume down too low but for whatever reason apparently he was not aware that the twin uh coming in from the opposite direction was landing ahead of him obviously he would not have started his takeoff role if he'd known that. 
Um, and apparently he didn't see the other airplane out there. Now, it's not a requirement, is it, Steph, that you have to use uh, radio communications in a non-towered uh, using CTAF? I mean, that's not a law that says you have to, nope. right? And nope. there's there's aircraft that do not actually have radios. Okay. So, um, yeah, it's it's definitely see and avoid. And I've certainly been, and actually the last time I was flying, there was an aircraft um, at the airport that I was going to land at that was in the traffic pattern and doing some pattern work. And I made multiple calls and um, never heard anything from them. And I'm certain I was, you know, I double-checked, rechecked, made sure I was on the right frequency. Um, someone else could hear me, so I knew I was on the right place. But they weren't making any radio calls. They weren't listening. Um, it's just one of those things where as you get close to the airport, you really do have to look and see who's in the traffic pattern because the wind was essentially calm. So you could use either end of the runway you choose. I was going to use the opposite end of the one that he was, or she, was doing pattern work on. And, you know, I so I stayed outside the pattern for a minute. I kind of watched them, saw what their intentions were. They did two more laps in the pattern and then left. So Interesting. So yeah. it's... I could have joined them in the pattern, but I wasn't entirely certain where they were going to go for the moment. So not only listening is an important aspect of operating in an uncontrolled airport environment, but also using your eyeballs and looking around and not assuming that everything is, you know, clear and, and uh, you're the only one there, right? You, there's, there's a good chance there might be somebody else there not on the uh, common traffic advisory frequency. Mm -hmm. But apparently the and setup of this runway, um, 1836, is they had like a, a taxiway that kind of approaches the middle of the runway. And then you have to, whether you're using 36 or 18, you have to back taxi. So apparently this accident airplane, the Beechcraft uh, Bonanza, uh, went onto the runway uh, to the north and then turned around at the end to uh, get ready for takeoff on runway 18. And maybe that was a factor, maybe not you know looking in the right direction for somebody coming in the opposite direction. Now, I get the winds were light, about three knots uh, out of the northwest, I believe. So it, I guess, technically favored a 3-6 operation. Uh, but... Um, I don't know. Yeah, that light, though. Yeah, I guess it could go either way, right, Dana? Yeah, I mean, if, if with that that light of uh, wind and the, uh, um, you know, as Dr. Steph would know and anybody that knows anything about, anything about aviation, uh, the aircraft in flight on final has the right away anyways. So he should have yielded, uh, obviously did not yield to the aircraft that was landing. Um, and, uh, you know, if the wind's that light and variable, there is nobody there to control the airport. And, you know, Dr. Seth is very correct in that anytime you approach a non-controlled airport, a class G, uh, airport, there is definitely no control to it whatsoever. And, you know, one of the things that we teach as flight instructors is a 45 degree entry in the pattern. And there's a, a specific reason why we do that. And that's because when you come to a 45 degree you know, that's a standard way of entering, but it really gives you a really good overview of the entire pattern as you come into the airport area so you can, you know, spot or see any threats that are in the pattern. Um, and, you know, it's a standard pattern altitude uh, is 1,000 feet AFE for prop aircraft, 1,500 feet for turbojet. 
um, aircraft. So that, you know, also helps to eliminate some of the threat. But irregardless, whenever you're around a airport and or a VOR or navigation facility, those are your highest threat areas that you have a potential of hitting any type of uh, another aircraft because they're high density areas. So, uh, you know, watching the video, it looks like he tried to go airborne because he, I'm just guessing, saw the aircraft coming at him. You can see him, see him very away, and he was in, in ground effect is what it looked like, and he got out of ground effect, and the aircraft just stalled, and he had lost control of the aircraft. Um, whether he had a radio, it's, it was a newer airplane. It looked like it was definitely a low wing. Yeah, 1990-something. Uh, Bonanza. Uh, Bonanza. Bonanza. Yeah. Bonanza. So, Bonanza I mean, should that's, have radios. It should have radios. I mean, there's a numerous number of causes. Uh, as you mentioned, it could be uh, it's just simply not using it, wrong frequency, uh, circuit breaker could have been popped, the radio could have been in our he may have, I mean, with a Bonanza, it's not a rental airplane, so he should be familiar with his radio panel not operating that properly. Uh, there's any number of, of, of causes. I don't think the, the uh, medication in his, in his system um, may, may or may not have played a role, but I don't think it would have. It's just inattention, uh, you know, the age and, and not paying attention to, to the small things and details. A twin, oh. twin engine aircraft coming at you, it's pretty hard to miss. It's not a small airplane. So. And, you know, I think anyone who's flown into a lot of uncontrolled airports, uh, airfields, especially Class G um, airfields, has had this experience where someone's on the ground taxiing around, potentially not listening at that moment for whatever reason, and you're announcing your intentions, you're going to come in and land, and you end up on opposing ends of the runway because of conditions like this where there's really no clear uh, wind favoring one direction or the other. Um, I've certainly ha had it happen to me multiple times where you're doing something, you know, all the time with practice approaches where you're pretty far out to start and you're coming in and you're announcing where you are. But if you, if whoever else is out there just misses that communication, they miss that timing, um, it happens pretty frequently and you can still say it and they'll still keep, keep doing what they're doing <laughs> for whatever reason. Yeah. So you just have to be very aware. You have to know that, you know, to, to basically be on the lookout for other folks out there at all times. Okay, well, Stefan, Dana. Um, this guy persisted in his takeoff and obviously got airborne probably uh, too uh, low and slow to control the airplane properly. Sure. Um, would he have been better off uh, stopping the takeoff, taking to the grass, um, you know, closing the throttle, trying to brake uh, and staying on the ground? Mm. You know, at that at that point, you're you're, you're in ground effect. He, he was heading straight on. You can see he. I watched the video. You can see he clearly saw the guy at the last minute. And he swerved the wrong direction. And he swerved. Right. And he swerved. He should have been going to the right because isn't that a rule where if you see oncoming traffic, you both yeah, go you right. Go right. And he went um, to the left. He went to the left. I mean, but that's that's he was in ground effect. So he thought he could get airborne to avoid. You know, he pulled back on the controls, and you can see where he's in ground effect, and the aircraft was actually flying for a moment. And as soon as he pulled out of ground effect, he actually went over another airplane. As soon as he got out of ground effect, that's when he lost control, complete control of the aircraft. So the aircraft just stalled out from underneath him. Um, so to answer your question, Nick, 
uh, there's no spoilers. There's no water braking system. There's no reverse system. It's uh, propping. You're going to slam on the brakes with a lot of lift on the wings, not putting a lot of pressure on those brakes at that type of speed. I don't think effectively when he probably saw the aircraft, he would have been able to avoid them if he had stayed on the runway. So I think it was probably the best decision. That's just my opinion. Um, at that point, his best decision was not to take off, certainly, uh, seeing the opposing traffic, but he just never saw it. He just never saw him. So, um, you know, I can't see the front of the uh, the twin, whether he had his landing lights on or not. I mean, that's that's another question I would have. Did the guy have his landing lights on? Did mm-hmm. that, you know, if you're facing into, and that's what we're, you know, prescribed at the airline, in the airline industry, you know, below 10,000 feet, all lights on for, for, for you know, for safety. Um, in a general aviation airports, a lot of times you'll see people flying around there, landing, taking off, never turn their lights on. Um, and another thing that you might find interesting with people that listen to the show is in general aviation, you're not even required to have any headset. You know, that's an optional yeah. item. So it can yeah, be, you don't speaking. need a radio. <laughs> you don't need, you don't need a radio. So this, 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 this guy may have not had a headset on, didn't listen. You know, there's, there's a whole lot of things here that, that are just wrong. Yeah. And, uh, well, how about the, uh, the twin coming in? If I'm coming in for a landing, I'm going to be looking at the airport and would, would he have not seen, the uh, Bonanza uh, back taxiing on the other end of the runway? Well, that was my question, especially because they, you have to back taxi to get to mm-hmm. um, one end of the runway or the other if you're going to use it for takeoff. I would think yes, but I don't know. Yeah, I, I just, that's just one of the questions I had when I was, you know, reading the... And I mean, assuming it's, I, I've not been to Bentonville, I don't know, I didn't look up anything about their... Uh, airfield about the runway there but I'm assuming it's relatively flat and doesn't have like large gradient to it or some visual obstruction as you're lining up on final there if someone has taxied out to the other end of the runway hopefully you're looking down the runway enough to notice something like that 4,426 feet long 65 feet wide yeah you should be, you should be able certainly to see. certainly be able to see so so I mean part of the fault I'd say I mean, most of the fault, of course, I think falls upon the the Beechcraft for not giving way to the airplane coming in for landing. But the guy that came in for a landing, you know, I, it seems to me that he would have seen the other airplane and would have gone around. Maybe. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's much much faster aircraft. It's approach speed. Yeah. He, you know, you just you don't you, you don't know when he picked it up, and I mean, it just it. <clears throat> there's a lot of ifs here. And I, agree. I absolutely, yeah, I, I, and I absolutely agree with you. I mean, if if you see another aircraft on the end, other end of the runway, even though you have the right of way, you know, obviously this person's on the runway; it's not responding. Let's uh, take it back airborne. Think about this and and wait for this uh, person that's not being very courteous or considerate, or you know, following the FARs. Quite frankly, um, give him a chance to get out of the way before you try to land the airplane. So, I I don't know. You'd have to ask the pilots that were flying that twin. Whether they saw him. Okay. Well, that uh, this will be in the show notes, uh, including the link to the uh, YouTube vis- video from the YouTube channel, What You Haven't Seen. Uh, a lot of good stuff there on that channel, What You Haven't Seen. And uh, you can see the uh, accident, uh, the surveillance video, and a uh, pretty good view of what happened there. And uh, that's about all I can say about that. Rolls-Royce, parts, shortage. Uh, to delay the 787 engine fix. 
according to Bloomberg.com, the issue could be compounded by a glitch. Another glitch with new batch of turbines. Rolls-Royce Hoiding, huh, Hoiding's. Rolls-Royce Holdings PLC is wrestling with a shortage of parts needed to repair hundreds of faulty engines that power Boeing Company's 787 wide-body jets, further stretching a tight timetable for repairs. The fix for excessive wear on the Trent 1000 engines is taking about three days longer than planned in some cases due to a shortfall in stocks of compressor blades, said the people. You know those people who asked not to be named as the supply bottleneck bottleneck hasn't been made public. As now, um, airlines are already being forced to lease replacement planes, sometimes for months, to maintain flights while Rolls-powered 787s are grounded for repairs. The number of idle jets reached 43 last week, according to the people, and the strain on component supplies could worsen after it was revealed Monday that durability issues extend to an earlier version of the engine. The parts crunch comes as Chief Executive Officer Warren East prepares to unveil job cuts from steps to simplify the business and improve margins. The restructuring, which Rolls plans to detail Friday, could see the elimination of 10% of the payroll, or about 5,000 posts, J.P. Morgan Chase and Company estimates. estimates. Rolls told Bloomberg that extra maintenance work on Trent 1000 engines has placed additional pressure on its component manufacturers. Their response has been exemplary, and we are confident that the initiative shown by our suppliers is making an important contribution to the containment and resolution of this issue, the company said. So I know it's probably a lot simpler, I mean, a lot more complicated than the way that I'm looking at this simply, but I'm thinking, you know, they're, I guess it's a parts issue and not a labor issue. I was thinking, why are we laying off people if we, it seems like, you know, the more people, the better to try to get these engines fixed. It's the classic way of someone who needs to make an instantaneous change to their outgoings. Jeff, there's very little they can do in this situation. You can't suddenly, um, uh, you know, get parts for nothing or stop paying people. So the best thing is to just take people off the payroll and all of a sudden you've, uh, you know, you've recovered X amount of money. But of course, those people go on and get jobs elsewhere. Some of them will be in a future development because uh, having read another article, uh, that's where uh, some are coming from, which will hurt them long-term but not short-term. Others are from middle management, which again will uh, hurt them long-term because all of a sudden you find that when you've got, you know, unwell people, HR problems, all those things that middle management deal with in a big company, um, there's, you know, there's no one there to do it anymore and things start breaking down, you know. Uh, things don't get done. So, and I always hate this because uh, this is people's lives, uh, uh, the income for their families that we're talking about. So suddenly laying people off uh, is just, I I hate it. It's a dreadful knee-jerk reaction, but a lot of companies do it. Yeah, you know, the the stockholders and, you know, stock prices and all that kind of stuff sometimes, you know, makes them or, they feel like they have to do something like that yeah, to, but to kind treat of their workforce like that. I think is is yeah, not well, it's horrible. Yeah, yeah, it's terrible. Um, our producer Liz tells me that uh, we do have some feedback um, regarding the layoffs at Rolls Royce, so we'll we'll be uh, talking about it again a little bit later in the show. Um, yeah, so hopefully the parts suppliers and we'll we'll get their stuff together and uh, they'll finally 
maybe make some headway in uh, repairs of the Trent 1000. Yeah. It's kind of funny, though, how Nick is always all about the bin liner, about the Boeing. And it's actually a Rolls-Royce product, which is English-made, that's having the issue. It's oh, causing yeah, but, the Boeing. But we, don't, we don't go around saying uh, it's an Airbus, uh, and uh, regardless of what engine is on. So, yeah, it, it's a Boeing problem. Boys, come on. Yeah. Stop it. I had he to. Started it I just down. had he to. Started it. He, he, I he had to. I know he did. I had to. Dana, no, I'm going to put you in you timeout. You didn't have to. Yeah. Yeah. He'll wield the you spanner and you'll be sorry. <laughs> okay. Let's continue. Cracking checks ordered on winglet equipped 767s from flightglobal.com. U.S. regulators are ordering operators of winglet equipped Boeing 767-300 to conduct checks on the wing structure following occurrences of fatigue cracking. Aviation Partners Boeing formally launched its winglet for the 767-300ER in 2007, and two years later, American Airlines put the modification into service. The winglets have since been adopted by several carriers, including U.S. operators Delta Airlines, United Airlines, and UPS. In an airworthiness directed uh, in an airworthiness directive, the U.S. FAA states that operators need to conduct high-frequency eddy current inspections for cracking of the lower outboard wing skin on the modified aircraft. It also orders follow-up actions, including repeat inspections, modification of internal stringers, and other measures. The FAA says the fatigue cracking in the wing skin could potentially result in separation of the winglet and reduced controllability. It says the directive affects some 140 U.S. registered aircraft. Certain aircraft identified in a service bulletin issued by Aviation Partners Boeing last year are unaffected owing to a change incorporated into winglet retrofit kits. European operators of winglet-equipped 767s include Austrian Airlines, Condor, and Iceland Air. So, looks like this after aftermarket uh, winglet... Um, Modification has been putting some, at least the earlier uh, versions of it, where it was putting some undue stress on the lower uh, outer wing skin on the uh, 767s. So that's interesting. Now let's move on to E, Accident, Bravo, MD-83 at Kiev on June 14, 2018. Runway excursion on landing. This from... The Aviation Herald, a Bravo Air McDonnell Douglas MD-83, registration uniform Romeo, Charlie Papa Romeo, performing flight 4406 from Turkey to Kiev with 169 passengers and six crew, landed on Igor Sikorsky, oh, poor guy, <laughs> uh, airport, oh, I'm sorry, Igor Sikorsky Airport's runway 8 at 2040 local time but veered left off the runway and came to a stop on soft ground. The aircraft was evacuated via slides. There were no injuries. The aircraft sustained substantial damage. Passengers reported the aircraft came to a stop with the right wing on the grass. A number of passenger seats inside the cabin had been torn off. The smell of smoke appeared in the cabin, prompting the passengers to run off the aircraft. The airport reported the aircraft suffered a runway excursion while landing. The airport was closed for three hours as a result of the occurrence. All 169 passengers of the aircraft were safely evacuated and taken to the terminal. 
Uh, Ukraine's NBAAI reported the aircraft ran beyond the limits of the runway while landing, and there were no injuries. That that makes it sounds like sound like they went out the end of it, but they actually veered off the side and before the end of the runway. Uh, looks like uh, the weather at the time included uh, light thunder showers and um, broken to scattered clouds. Yeah, temperature 22 degrees, 23 degrees Celsius, and the winds 070 variable 130. Um, not sure of the speed. Let me see here. What was the speed that they had during that time? Well, it's in meters um, per second. But, uh, oh, see, so that's why I didn't recognize it. You, what does that if mean? If you have it, you'll get, a, <laughs> get knots. Okay. Have it? For, uh, have it. Okay. Yes. So... Not not too windy. No, didn't look too bad. Anyway, there's some pictures here of the uh, Mad Dog off the side with the uh, slides deployed. And uh, it's hard to tell from the photos, Dana, but it almost looks like the gear was sheared off. Either that or it sunk down into the ground. I can't tell. Yeah, I can't tell. I can't tell either. It just doesn't, uh, it doesn't look like, uh, I don't know what to tell. I mean, from the photo, I can't really. He's got his landing lights on there. Yeah, it does. He does have his <laughs> landing lights on. <laughs> but uh, I think that the uh, the weather was behind them on the uh, approach. It's possible maybe that uh, they got some kind of a gust front or something that, you know, at the last minute, maybe uh, toward the uh, end of their uh, landing approach or the start of their landing procedure. I don't know. Something, something weird happened. There's some video uh, included in... The, uh, where is that? I thought I had some video. Hmm. Well, I will make sure that I put the video in the show notes that show, uh, it's a, somebody in the cabin was uh, taking some video of the landing and everything looked pretty normal until it just started veering off to the left a little bit, very, very slowly. Kind of like and then nonchalant veer to Yeah, just you can see the like that the yellow stripe at the or the white stripe at the uh, edge of the runway in view and then all of a sudden you start getting closer and closer and closer to it and then all of a sudden go 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 <laughs> a lot of noise and, and people screaming. <laughs> I mean, I shouldn't be laughing, but uh yeah, you, you know right away there's something going wrong there. I, I, but, I, I wouldn't be surprised. Of course, we we may actually never know, but this might be a, a classical situation of the reverse thrust taking away the rudder uh, rever- rudder authority and it was wet and uh, whatnot although it's not very windy uh, you know could have been I mean this is just hypothetical could have been a new pilot over you know over boosting one of the engines pulls the pulls the airplane off the side of the runway because it wasn't a an immediate pullover so or could have been a blown tire I mean it's is anything that that could be it could have caused that. That middle photograph, uh, the reverses look different uh, on the left and the right engines. Can can you work that out, or is that something else? Yeah, it looks like the right. I mean, the 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 uh, one with the tail. You can see from the tail, and yeah. you see all the other illusions yeah. um, in the back there. Um, yeah. yeah, the right engine reverser is is deployed, and the, the left, left is not. Left one is not. Yep, that's what it looks like. Uh, looks like to me. So. That's that's some... that's what kind of prompted me on that. It could have been a, a reverser uh, asymmetrical or or reverser problem. Here's some. Uh, we'll, we'll listen to the audio of the video. I found the video. It's actually a link in uh, the Aviation Herald. 
Can you hear this? Yep. Yep. Okay. Yep. It's wet. Uh, definitely wet runway. Okay, they're touching down. Everything looks normal. They're still on the runway. They're the reverse. Oh, and as soon as the reverse comes out, guess what? They start sliding to the left. Great landing. Got some people's attention there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no clapping. Yeah, did the captain come out and uh, greet everyone and say goodbye to everyone as they <laughs> Probably, went down? I think the there's spot. some video of people uh, running away from the uh, airplane. I think the captain is the first one out. <laughs> He's running. They haven't seen him since. <laughs> Love it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, interesting. And, yeah, so I bet you're right. So, and and another, another thing is I'm willing to bet... I'm looking at, I, I just watched a video too here. I'm willing to bet that's not a grooved runway. So no, that, I don't think so. Yeah. So if the auto spoilers and or auto brakes were, were either not armed or didn't work, that would be a factor as well. Absolutely. And now, interestingly, it went off to the left side and the picture that we see of the uh, airplane, the right reverser is still deployed and the left is not. That may have just been the after effect of trying to, you know, keep it from, veering off to the left uh, because if you if you had that situation with the right out and the left not you would go off the right side of the runway right well it's the right gear that's collapsed though so the right the right reverser looks like it's stuck in the ground yeah. it may have not been able to stow well the left one okay. was able probably able to stow because left main gear is still attached or you know whatever yeah, it's hard to tell. Um, hard to tell when that happened, but by watching the video, Jeff, I absolutely think it's because it's not a groove runway. You know, they the the rate of deceleration on the video um, was not indicative of a uh, auto braking system being applied. I mean, because you wait three seconds, you get you know, if you're a medium, three seconds, the aircraft's going to start decelerating pretty rapidly, as you know. So I I would imagine that the auto brakes were not armed. And on a wet runway that is um, is not grooved, you know, you've got hydroplaning issues going on, and uh, anything more than 1.3, as we know, you stop blanking out that rudder and you lose control. And, and listening to the video, that was that was actually pretty loud reverse. Mm-hmm. So, yep, that's just my take on it. Yeah, I think that's a good good guess on your part. All right, and then finally in the uh, news folder, we have uh, Dash 8 set on fire in Papua New Guinea. Uh, let's see, the Alpha Yankee Mike November, the Mendy Airport, has been closed indefinitely after protesters set fire to and destroyed an Air New Guinea Dash 8 aircraft, which had just arrived from Port Moresby. The protest was in response to a court ruling confirming the election of the Southern Highlands governor, William Powie. I thought it was because they just didn't like the Dash 8. Well, maybe that was something to do with it because it really, really looks in this picture like they really do not, no, do not like no, a Dash not, 8. Not a fan. It's, it's not, they're not going to fly that airplane again, I can no. tell you that for sure. Um, in, initially, the local police station commander, Gideon Kawuke, had said police were guarding the aircraft to ensure there was no further damage after its tires had been flattened. 
But he said, and there was something else I was reading that uh, said that they thought that somebody had actually shot at the airplane and made the tires flat by, by, by shooting at the tires while it was still airborne. That, that'd be a pretty good, accurate uh, shot, I would think. Mm. Um, Unless they were aiming at the pilot. They, they may have been, and they just missed and hit the tires. Yeah. But he said his team of about 10 police couldn't contain a mob of uncountable numbers, particularly after missiles were thrown, forcing them to retreat. We were guarding the plane, but compared to them, we were outnumbered, and they came in all directions, all corners. Missiles were thrown. Bush knives were thrown. <laughs> Mr. Kawuke said some of the pro- protesters who continue to behave men- menacingly in Mendy, as their numbers build up, were carrying guns. He said the protest was in response to a court ruling in Wyagani confirming the election of the... I guess this guy was not a popular uh, Southern Highlands governor, William Poey. Uh, The Australian Department of Foreign Affairs is cautioning all to, quote, reconsider your need to travel to the regions affected by the unrest and to also, quote, exercise a general degree of caution. And then, of course, in the article here, it says the local NOTAM says it all. AD closed to all aircraft ops due civil unrest. Uh, 14 June 2018 until 13 July, estimated. <laughs> so it's going to be closed for a while. There's another good photo of the uh, Dash 8 uh, before it completely buckled in half. That's sad. It's a nice looking airplane, isn't it? It is. Probably not very cheap either. And. I wonder oh. where the skipper is. Um, I'm hiding somewhere. I nowhere near. <laughs> I hope he didn't get one of those bush knives that were being thrown. No, so do I. Seems yeah. like a strange form of protest, um, unrelated. Yeah, so you thought the protests were bad here? Nah, <laughs> <laughs> that's nothing compared to this. Yeah, it's crazy. Captain, incoming message. Hey, let's start with the first item in our feedback folder from Larry. Um, so Larry sent, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm wondering if it's something that we should have included in the uh, front part of the show, uh, you know, the errata or uh, stuff that we got wrong. Um, according to Larry, we got this wrong. Um, Captain Dana posted a photo of his captain's wings and larry wrote us and said um that was an error and he said this is what your wings should look like and he has affixed the acme a and the acme airlines uh, on on top of the badly designed wings that you had in the original photo, Dana. <laughs> yeah. They look very smart, man. They were, I mean, they were just kind of, I yeah, mean, they're, I like they're great. They're, they're nice. It was just kind of a knockoff of some other airline. So they just yeah, I don't recognize what airline that is. No, that, it's, uh, it's vaguely familiar. It, 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 yeah. It's well, it looks, triangle air. It looks, it looks Russian airline to me with that star on top. Yep, it sure is. <laughs> it does. Russian eagle. <laughs> anyway, so thanks, Larry, Thank for you, your Larry. creativity. Yeah. We're going to have to get a couple of those made, Dana. Yes. Wear them. I think we should. I don't think anybody yeah. ever noticed either. Probably not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, let's see. Steve hopes to meet up with the crew at FIA. Hi, APG crew. Longtime listener and Coffee Fund Cadre mem- member. 
when I first started listening to your excellent podcast, episode 250-ish, I was uh, living in China and kind of written off the chances of ever joining one of your meetups. Recently, I moved to Mexico City, and the potential increased a notch or two given my proximity to the U.S. and some planned trips there. Anyway, just so happens that I will be in the U.K. visiting family from the 13th of July, which I believe coincides with Riyadh 2018, and Fambra Air Show Week, and so the possibility of a week up now seems I'm reach. Is that like a way of saying thing, or is that just uh I think it's I a typo. Wrong? Okay. I think within reach. Within reach. Oh, within reach. Okay. Do let me know how your plans are shaping up. It would be great to finally meet you all and say thanks for all the work you do putting on a great podcast. Until then, wishing you clear skies, tailwinds, and excellent IPAs. Steve Hurst. Thank you, Steve. Excellent. Yeah, look forward to uh, meeting up with you. Yeah, we're definitely going to be there at uh, Fambra, um, uh, especially the weekend, I think, toward the latter part of the week, the weekend, weekend. the public air show, right? I'm off that uh, finished reserve on Thursday. I'm hoping I'm hopping on the flight Thursday evening because I'll be off by then. And I think Dana and I will be in a race Thursday evening to see who gets to London first. Okay. <laughs> Except he knows he knows my flight times already, so yeah, he's got advantage here to. Yeah, I still don't know where I'm staying, so I have to work that out. Well, you're going to stay with me, aren't you? Oh well. Okay. Sorted. Sorted. Yeah, there we go. Easy. Bam. Bam. We have a winner. All right, uh, moving on. Speaking of meetups, uh, Chuck writes in. He says, hello, APG crew. I had a good time at Innovations in Flight today in Northern Virginia. Lots of interesting people and planes. And to top it off, I was able to meet and hang out with Captain Jeff near the end of the day. Looking forward to meeting the rest of the APG crew in the future. Keep up the great work, and I'll keep you posted on my glider adventures here in West Virginia. Thanks, Chuck. And he sent a photo of the two of us. Uh, there at the uh, Uverhazi Center. And uh, interesting guy, he uh, is a uh, hydroponic uh, farmer. I think I said that right. Is that right? Hydroponics? Where the where the vegetables don't grow in soil, but they grow in water? I think that is correct. Okay. Yeah. Anyway, very cool. He was kind of explaining how all that stuff worked. Different kind of lettuces and other vegetables, tomatoes, and that kind of stuff that uh, grow on top of a a ridge. Um, Because, you know, if you've ever been to West Virginia, that whole state, it's a beautiful state, covered with uh, rolling hills and mountains and not a lot of flatland. We talked about Charlie West last week. Yeah, that's right. They had had to lop off the top of a mountain to put a runway in. Exactly. I'm sorry for being rude to interrupt. Oh, no, no. That was a good good interruption. Here we go. That's the good interruption bell. And let's see. So I'll, I'll put a uh, link to this sh- um, note in the show notes so you can see um, what Chuck looks like. Uh, good looking man there next to some uh, old ugly guy with a uh, ratty looking mustache and gray hair. Um, Chris writes, uh, Chris Cheatwood. Actually, he sent us a link to an article. Uh, from AirlineGeeks.com, AirlineGeeks, not AirplaneGeeks.com. And uh, the article is about Amazon One, uh, which uh, is an operation, an air freight operation 
run by Amazon or Amazon, depending on where you are in the world. And I'll just start reading a little bit of this article, but I won't read the whole thing. You can do that by clicking on the link in the show notes. As the old saying goes, it's, if it's free, it's for me. And for most American consumers, nothing beats free. E-commerce giant Amazon understands this well and is known for providing its Amazon Prime customers with two-day shipping on products and effectively wiping out the retail industry in the United States. <laughs> well, that's pretty, uh, that's going a little bit far, I think. Um, as people prefer to have things delivered to them for free instead of going to the store directly. While many people see free shipping and get a package on their doorstep two days later, few recognize the true cost of the package, especially to those flying them across the country. And they probably don't care. The pilots that fly the Amazon package-carrying cargo aircraft are often crisscrossing the world in the dead of night to ensure that these packages get delivered on time. In order to meet increasing demand, Amazon created Amazon Air, which contracts with cargo airlines to streamline its shipping to customers. And then they go on to talk about uh, some of the companies that contract or Amazon contracts with Atlas Air, ABX Air, and Air Transport International. And talking about uh, contracts and how their contracts compare with other freight cargo outfits and uh, their passenger counterparts, etc., and the fact that they're uh, not paying as much and the benefits aren't as great and they're working a lot harder than they feel they should be. And uh, I don't know. Did you guys get a chance to read the article? Oh, so I can oh yeah, yeah. I, I did, Jeff, and I, I'm, I'm really struggling to understand the logic behind it. Um, it's, it's like they're equating the fact that you get free shipping the fact they're not paying their cargo pilots sufficient, and that the, the logic just does not apply. A cargo pilot gets what his contract suggests. He gets what benefits are in his contract. He gets the same pay as he would if he was carrying an Amazon package or he was carrying a bunch of uh, alligators. I don't know. Kangaroos around the world. It doesn't matter what he's carrying. He gets paid the same. Um, I would assume that's true, yeah. Well, I, I would have, uh, yeah, I'm not one of those guys, so, yeah, but I'm pretty sure. Um, and if he's working, if a cargo pilot's working for a company that's not paying particularly well, then he can just shift to another company that is. And if um, that company is short of pilots, then they need to start increasing their benefits and pay to attract more pilots. Um, the fact that Amazon is involved with this, I, I think, is a complete, um, you know, furf. If, if you were working in the industry uh, of flying cargo around uh, and you had a big customer like Amazon and wanted to shift lots of stuff and were giving you lots of business, I'd have thought you'd actually been quite pleased, not complaining the fact that, uh, you know, um, you kind of it both ways. You you get a good customer with lots of work, and you don't get any customers either way. Um, it's not good uh, if you don't get any work. So I really don't quite know where this guy's going. What do you think, Steph? Um, so I see what what Nick is saying. I was trying to read back through it. Um, they basically saying that because Amazon is offering free or significantly reduced cost shipping that they're trying to offset that by somehow affecting the contracts for those pilots, or if it goes to something that they wholly control, um, 
you know, if, if right now Amazon Air is is flown by other operators essentially, but if it becomes something that they're controlling entirely, are they worried that that's going to affect those contracts down the road? I think that's kind of what they were getting at. Yeah, and the way I understand it, I believe is the way that Nick does as well, is that these, you know, Amazon is contracting with third parties, um, Atlas and ABX Air and Air Transport International. And, you know, as as he said, regardless of whether they're flying dream lifters and parts for Boeing or whether they're flying Amazon Air Prime Air um, 767s, I, I would imagine that they're getting the same pay regardless of who they're doing it for. Um, I, I just can't imagine there would be any difference in the contract. And the, and the companies that they're working for are the ones that are negotiating the contracts with Amazon. So um, I, I don't think they have a beef with Amazon. I think they have a beef with the company they fly for. Well, currently, yes, I think that's perhaps the problem. I think what they're insinuating, though, is that eventually it'll just be Amazon operating those flights directly somehow. And that's what's going to shift all of that. Well, I mean, let's let's face it. When you look at retail, the, the markup is better part of close to 50%. So what Amazon effectively is doing, instead of charging consumers for delivery through a uh, traditional brick and mortar, which you have to have the higher um, um, leeway on, on your profits, um, you don't have to pay for brick and mortar, so Amazon's transition translating that into free delivery, effectively. So, uh, you know, the profits are not really, or, or the costs are not being borne by the uh, by the airline itself. I mean, with them being in contract with ABEX and all the other the other two carriers, it is effectively what you negotiate between the pilot union and the company that you're working for. It's not Amazon directly. So we, we can't get those two confused. Now, if Amazon wants to open up its own airline, it may, uh, but the the crews are effectively flying for a, a third party, as you've mentioned. Now, as far as, you know, what the work rules are, um, you know, the FARs are very specific and, and uh, you know, fortunately at some other airlines, they've negotiated better work rules than, than what's been negotiated here. And, and they're talking a lot about retention, pilot retention and attracting uh, pilots. And one of the biggest things is, 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 you know, I had a buddy of mine that actually got hired by ABEX. He now, uh, you've heard me talk about him, Dave, uh, left, uh, um, it's former ASA. I can't remember the, the, the new name of the company, but anyways, um, you know they're they're going out. So he got hired by them, and he decided not to go there and went to corporate route because their starting pay was less than fifty dollars an hour for first year, which was one quarter or no one third of what he was making as a regional pilot. Never mind flying seven sixty seven around the world. So I see where they're coming from. Is that the the uh, it tends to be that these the um, third-tier cargo companies tend to not pay very well and not treat their employees very well, so thus retention uh, is is much lower and also trying to attract people that that are capable or have the talents to to be with that airline is much more difficult, especially in these times when you have all the majors hiring, you have all the the first-tier cargo companies hiring, um, all the international carriers, every, everybody's pretty much hiring. So the competition level is, is much stiffer. So the other thing that they're talking about here is is the uh, maintenance issues going on. Again, 
uh, you know, as as a, a legitimate pilot, if you have a maintenance issue going on with the aircraft, you've got to write it up. Don't fly the airplane if it's not safe to fly. So those are some of the things that I see that he's talking about in this article. Um, certainly talk, starts, you know, off talking about the Amazon's free ship, uh, free delivery. Well, you know, where they're getting that, as I mentioned, is, is because their, their, you know, markup is not as high as a typical brick and mortar. So that's my take on that. And uh, it's going to continue to be an issue because as, as the – industry and as pilots become in shorter supply if these uh, second and third tier um cargo companies and i'm not saying that in a negative way it's just uh, that's that's where they kind of sit uh, they're not a fedex ups um you know abex is not saying anything bad about abex um but they're just not paying the same level of the other carriers and they're not they don't have the same work rules and that's why i think what the the crux of this whole thing is and in their equipment is just not as well maintained uh, Nigel in the chat room kind of makes a point. He says Amazon plays the freight companies off uh, against each other. Companies then use Amazon contract as a means to reduce annual contract negotiations with pilots. So maybe using it as a, an excuse to keep the the rates and benefits low on their contracts because, yeah. hey. I agree Amazon's with that. Saying, that only works until uh, you can't get enough pilots to work for your company to fly right. the airplanes you've got, and then you you have to bounce back at some point. So if uh, people are looking for an airline job and they're comparing uh, working for, say, a major legacy carrier and uh, a cargo outfit, they're going to go, well, I know where I'm going to go. And uh, so the pilot shortage will hit these cargo carriers first, and they're going to have to up their rates and uh, charge Amazon or whoever their customers are more. Yeah, well, that's true. And in, in, in Atlas and ABEX and, and ATI all were, were, you know, were heading towards uh, some financial issues until Amazon came along and offered them the, these contracts. So they were all shrinking extensively. And now that, that they have a new lifeline, it, it's a new contract, which is providing the company uh, you know, revenue in which they can operate. And now they have to, you know, they're, they're looking to expand. And if they're going to expand, they need to find, as Nick said, you get to pay, pay for qualified people to come fly for you. Or you just wait for technology to finally get to the point where we have flying airplanes with no pilots. No. Yeah. Well, <laughs> you guys are going to let those cargo planes go with any one pilot now, aren't you? Oh, yeah, we're going to do that. Yeah, I heard that. I, I'm saying, yeah, I'm all for that. Not, <laughs> not sure. You know, I keep meaning to uh, check on the status of that uh, that, that, that House ridiculous. resolution. Uh, that bill, bill, that reauthorization bill. Yeah. I it sounds like for... what these cargo outfits need is a decent uh, union agitator. You you looking for a job? No, no, but I'm my mate Nigel might be. Oh yeah, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you have a man in mind. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah, very very good, Chris. Thanks for the uh, link to the article. Anything? Somebody wanted to say something else I was before we move say, on? I'll make very very be very clear and very specific. I wasn't uh, derating anybody at the you know, ABEX or Atlas or ATI. When I say the second and third tier, it's it's not that's not what I mean by it at all. It's just that uh, you know, you get FedEx and UPS that are 
that and what I'm talking about when I'm talking about that, I'm talking about pay rates and, and, and yeah, you're, quality of life, that type of not that meant to be a derogatory. Yeah, not at all. I just want to make sure I'm very yeah. clear that it's, it's it's we're talking pay rates and in quality of life, which is really I'm I'm supporting what they're saying is what I'm yeah. really trying to say. All righty. Let's move on to number five. Louisiana Steve writes in. This is uh, pretty serious. Um, after the recent incident with the American Airlines aircraft being hail damaged going into El Paso, it's good to see this story with another captain respecting the weather. And then it gives us a link to the article. He says, hope all is well in APG land. Louisiana Steve. Oh, God, yeah. Can you see this cloud? This, ah, this is a terrifying. terrifying. Yes. It's ah. a great white cloud. Here's the headline. Pilot informs passengers they will be rerouting to avoid a scary cloud that looks like a shark. Let that sink in. <laughs> Advising passengers on Flight 523 to Chicago to sit tight while the aircraft was rerouted, United Airlines pilot Thomas Langard informed his passengers Friday that they would be altering course to avoid a scary cloud that looked just like a big shark. This is your captain speaking. It's my duty to inform you that we will be departing slightly from our charted route in order to avoid a terrifying cumulonimbus cloud that resembles a really big great white shark, said Langard over the intercom, apologizing for the 20 to 30 minutes the detour, detour would add to their flight time, but emphasizing that there was no other way to avoid the giant sky shark. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm scared. Although meteorology out of Phoenix Tower tells me it's just a cloud, my professional experience tells me it looks exactly like a big angry shark with sharp teeth. So on behalf of your flight crew, I'm going to go ahead and veer eastward so we can keep our distance. People on the left side of the aircraft may want to lower their window shades to avoid getting spooked by the cloud shark or even looking in, uh, looking it in the eyes and getting it angry. And we'll be sending our flight attendants to distribute blankets in case you want something to hide under. Federal Air Traffic Control later reported that Langard returned the plane to its original course after prevailing high-altitude winds, transformed the cloud into a playful and friendly dolphin. Woo-hoo. Yeah. <laughs> oh, the story was a good ending. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I should have left that one for the end. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, you probably figured it out. This is from The Onion, um, a satire uh, on well, it used to be a satire newspaper, but now it's. I guess maybe they're still doing a newspaper, but it's mostly online. I think now. I haven't seen a actual paper version of the news quite some time. Doesn't it actually have <laughs> to have some news in it? Uh, yeah, the news is that this guy <laughs> rerouted this flight to avoid that terrible-looking, terrifying Huge shark. News. I don't know what you're talking yeah. about. Yeah, <laughs> it's aviation-related. It's good stuff. Can you see me rolling my eyes? Yes, I can, and nope. your head. <laughs> All right. Thanks, Louisiana Steve, for the laugh. Uh, Patrick writes, Hi, Captains and Doctor. I love the show and listen to every episode since the days it was still called Catholic Pilot. I got the airliner bug while growing up under the approach path of Amsterdam Schiphol Airport. The new unabridged YouTube cockpit video of a short Transavia B737 ferry flight from Amsterdam to Rotterdam caught my eye, and then he gives us a link. I honestly haven't looked at that, but I'm going to continue with his feedback. After watching this, I'm not sure I want to be on a Transavia flight. The pilots engage in quite some corny banter while taxiing out to the runway, discussing anything from the possibility of slaloming the lightly loaded B737, doing Inspector Clouseau impersonate, impersonate, Inspector Clouseau impersonations, 
and philosophizing whether the work of digging trenches is relaxing. Hmm. I'd say no. I, I can't imagine that digging a trent, trench would be relaxing. I never thing. knew philosophers no. talked about such uh -oh. things. Well, pilot philosophers do. <laughs> Pilots who are not actually philosophers. Yeah, yes. well, okay. But I do like the Inspector Clouseau. Hello? Is Inspector Clouseau? Yeah, why are you digging that trench? <laughs> Does your dog Does your bite? Dog bite? <laughs> <laughs> At the 11.50 time mark, the plane crosses runway 36 center, 18 center, while the pilots are discussing issues about the cheapness of the new terminal. The captain looks outside for only a fraction of a second. Shouldn't there have been some check whether the runway is really not active, irrespective of whether ground control apparently cleared them to proceed much earlier? This W5, Whiskey 5 intersection at Echo Hotel Alpha Mike is marked specifically as a runway incursion hotspot. Is this super jo jovial cockpit banter normal? Or does this violate the FAA sterile cockpit rule and should they report to the chief pilot? As always, kudos for the enthusiasm and professionalism, professionalism that you share with us every week on APG. Greetings from San Jose, California. Patrick. Uh, I'm not sure that the FAA rules regarding sterile cockpit uh, applies to Transavia over outside the United States where the FAA does not have jurisdiction. Would you agree with that, Captain Nick? Uh, yes. Do you have any kind of a rule like that that we have in our country? Uh, kind of. Uh, kind of, okay. It only really involves uh, communications into the cockpit from elsewhere. Uh, what the crew say to them, each other, uh, isn't actually regulated. Oh. Well, I'd, I'd be right at home over there. <laughs> <laughs> you would. Um, you would. We're a bit more relaxed about it, although we're encouraged to keep the talk professional. Uh, right. But, as, um, as possible. It, well, so you're not yeah. talking about, uh, you're not doing Inspector Clouseau impersonations. Um, Might be. Bit nosy about out there. How, how uh, cheap the uh, yeah. new terminal is and yes. whether the work of it digging is, trenches is, is relaxing. Is that a boom? <laughs> Did you say a boom? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, so uh, I tried to watch this video to see exactly um, what... Uh, uh, Patrick was talking about, um, but uh, I I fell asleep to tell the truth. It was so boring, <laughs> I never got to the bit. So uh, it seemed to be pretty standard pilot banter, I'm afraid. Although yeah, I must admit, when we go, uh, I'm sorry to interrupt. When we cross a runway at a hot spot, we actually stop. Uh, we put the strobes on. Uh, we double-check with each other that we have confirmed we have a clearance to cross, and we I look at my side and he looks at his side, and we both check with each other that the runway is clear, and then we cross. And then at the end of it, we turn the strobes back off. Um, so it sounds like they weren't being perhaps quite as professional as they should. Yeah, I was, I was going to just make the same exact point, that uh, crossing a runway, whether you – believe it's active or not you always i mean dana i'm sure you do the same thing even if the runway is noted as closed i still turn off uh, turn on all the lights and look anyway you know because who knows if there might be some idiot out there that doesn't know the runway is closed and tries to land on it and land on you in the process yeah, absolutely uh, if i remember to turn the lights on as new captain 
Oh, yeah, well, you'll get, you'll get I'll get there. But no, uh, only kidding. Uh, realistically, even as a, a, a first officer, I would always confirm and I would verbalize it. Um, that, yeah. You know, look clear left, to cross, clear to cross. Clear to cross, look, uh, look left, you know, mm-hmm. clear, clear left, over here, clear right. right. Yep. Mm-hmm. And, and making sure. So absolutely. It's uh, it's a hot topic and a hot spot. That's why they have hot spots. And that's why it's uh, it's imperative that we do so. And I say, anytime you cross any runway, whether you believe it's active or not, that's a hot spot. Yep, absolutely. <laughs> really... Don't ever go into a runway unless you confirm that you have a clearance to cross it. I don't care whether yeah. it's closed or not. Yeah. I agree with you, Jeff. Yeah. I mean, I think we all agree that maybe uh, Patrick's feeling here about it not being 100% professional, um, I, I think we kind of agree with you. So, thank you for... Riding in, Patrick? At least it was a nice yeah. landing. What's that? At least it was a nice landing. I watched the it video. At least oh, the you landing. did. You, d- you didn't fall asleep. Well done. Well, I fast-forwarded to the landing just to see oh, how okay. it so You just watched the interesting bits. The interesting <laughs> yeah. bits. Just to see if they crashed. Yep. And it's a very nice landing. Okay. Earlier we were talking in the news segment about uh, Rolls-Royce and the issue they're having with part supplies and such. And we kind of touched upon... Briefly, the fact that they had announced that they are cutting a bunch of jobs, and we have some audio feedback from Luke regarding that. So take it away, Luke. Good afternoon, APG crew. This is Luke Langbin from the Wilmington, North Carolina area. I found an interesting article, which I hope is attached or included in the show notes, about Rolls-Royce's response to their engine repairs costing more than expected and affecting their predicted cash flows. They've decided to cut 4,000 jobs in the UK area. I'm not sure if these job cuts will directly affect the ability for the company to make the needed repairs to their engines or not. I understand that companies need to maximize share price to keep shareholders happy to not have management changes. However, this is an example of very short-sighted incentives keeping the company from more or less doing the right thing of just focusing on fixing the issue at hand and taking the dip in share price instead of only focusing on keeping the share price up. In my opinion, this is the largest fault with publicly traded companies. Short-term share price recovery tends to always trump long-term permanent recoveries and growth. I don't blame management as they're trying to secure their job by appeasing shareholders. Some investors see the value in long-term permanent solution. However, most focus on only meeting their quota. Airlines are also publicly traded companies. I'm wondering if you and the APG crew have been able to see some management decisions made at Acme or Acme Red, maybe even Acme Junior, that might have gone against what you thought was in the best interest to do or might have actually been beneficial for the company. I look forward to hearing what you have to say. If you can, this might be pushing it a little with trying to remain neutral and non-associated with your carrier. Anyways, if uh, you ever make it out to the Wilmington, North Carolina area, give me a heads up. We'd love to take you out for some beer. Keep the blue side up. This has been Luke. Thank you, Luke. Um, now, he he works for Langbean Builders. Well, probably owns it, uh, which is a, a home building. I went to the uh, website. Uh, some beautiful homes and uh, in the Wilmington area. Um, but it sounds like you're a stockbroker or some kind of a financial analyst. I mean... That, that was some pretty some pretty heady stuff there that you were talking about. But uh, uh, I think we kind of touched. Well, beyond ahead. us pilots. Yeah. 
But I was going to say that, uh, yeah, I, I am to a, a agree uh with luke uh, 100% um and uh yes uh airlines i've been associated with have done exactly that and uh it takes a while perhaps a little while before you feel the ramifications of it but um slowly when you suddenly realize that departments that used to function very smoothly no longer do so and when those departments affect the operations of the airline then it it does become a problem. I really couldn't say more than that, though. Very good. Yeah, we agree with you, Luke. And uh, we'll put a link to the article that uh, he linked us to, Rolls-Royce set to announce more than 4,000 job cuts. And uh, I guess they actually did announce that on Friday, didn't they? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. How's that been met with uh, in the UK? Well, no real... Um, analysis done yet uh the departments as i mentioned slightly earlier the departments they're cutting jobs for uh middle management and uh, future development so uh, hopefully they won't um, prevent them from digging themselves out of the hole they've found themselves in um so in the short term it shouldn't do much except perhaps save them some money but those people would be essential to the company's long-term survival. So um, particularly those in uh, research and development, those engineers, they're hard to find, hard to get hold of, and they're not going to stick around waiting for uh, Rolls-Royce to re-employ them. They'll be off somewhere and snapped up by other companies who need people of such skill. So, uh, you know, Rolls-Royce might be aiming a pistol at their feet right now. Thanks again. Luke, um, yeah, uh, I love Wilmington. I think Dana agrees. It's a great layover. and I concur as well. Uh, beautiful well, town. Oh, yeah, yeah. Nice Wilmington's town. Wilmington's a beautiful Yeah. I, I absolutely love Wilmington, especially uh, it's the small town feel. You get Cape Fear, not to Cape Fear. Those don't understand what I'm saying. It's Let Cape me translate. Fear. Cape, Cape Fear. Fear. Cape Fear. <laughs> and then uh, the USS North Carolina, which is right across the river, which is really neat as well to go visit. So great little town. Really good restaurants. Yes. And uh, some places with some good beer as well. I it's North Carolina that. after all. Yeah, it's North Carolina. There you go. All right. Uh, Loic, or he tells us to call him Luke. Just to make it simpler, he says, uh, hi, APG crew. I've been listening to your podcast since I believe episode 300 and started to suffer from the APG syndrome at an early stage. Cue the music, he says. Got it cued. APG syndrome. APG syndrome. I don't know if it's in our our, our uh, feedback for this week's show or not, or I'm not sure exactly where. I, it may have been on Twitter or something. I was saw somebody write that uh, they were somewhere and they heard um, this the the original um, version song of the version of the song, <laughs> and they started singing. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of APG <laughs> syndrome. <laughs> Do they do the scream in there as well? The, ah. <laughs> Probably. They should have. Uh, okay. Uh, let's see. You are now part of my weekly routine, and I even recently started to be part of the coffee fund. Yay. Thank you, Luke. 
Captain Jeff even uh, surprisingly properly pronounced my name in the episode 327. I've heard many variations of it through my three years in the United States. To make it easy, y'all can call me Luke uh, from France, as my email address gave away. But I live in the Dallas-Fort Worth area with my wife and our three children, a.k.a. our two dogs and a cat, all rescues. Ah, Good for you. Thank you for rescuing uh, those animals. Anyway, here is my question. My work is located on Short Final, north of the Dallas Love Field Airport, and Boeing 737s from a Dallas-based low-cost airline are part of my daily routine. Keep I think he's talking about Southwest. Mm-hmm. On foggy days, I like to open live ATC and watch the airplanes breaking through the low ceiling. One morning, I was listening to a 737 MAX that kept going around. Other planes in between would land since the cloud base altitude seemed to vary a lot. But that 737 was unlucky enough to have to go around six times before successfully landing on the seventh attempt. After the fourth time, the tower asked the plane if they wanted to divert, but they responded that they would keep trying. I was surprised to see them try so many times, but some other airplanes would successfully land, and in my opinion, this is a reason why they persevered. It probably took around one and a half hours. These pilots know their jobs more than I, but I would imagine that the company has some rules about a maximum number of go-arounds before diverting. Or do airlines allow you pilots to carry and burn that much extra fuel if you know the visibility is going to be crappy at your destination and expect to hold or go around multiple times? I always tell myself I should divert after the third attempt to avoid making a fatal mistake out of rush and frustration. I do not have as much experience as these pilots, though. Any thoughts? I hope my feedback wasn't too long. No, not at all. Hoping to get some IPAs and barbecue here in the DFW area with you guys sometime soon. Fly safe. And again, that's uh, Loic or Luke um, living in Dallas-Fort Worth, originally from France. And I was kind of surprised when I saw him say that he went around six times before they landed the seventh. And that that is not common at all. But they must have had a heck of – they may have been tankering fuel – from wherever they departed and because of the or maybe the fuel at love field is higher priced and so sometimes our company dana will uh, confirm this uh, will actually until i just heard recently that they decided that um the uh, uh the tankering on our airplane in these hot summer months is going to cease because i guess we're getting a lot of uh, uh engine over temps and so they're trying to keep the weight down as much as they can. But regardless, uh, a lot of times we'll have 5,000, 10,000 pounds of extra fuel on board the airplane because, and it's called tankered fuel because they are trying to save some money. Even though it costs money to fly extra weight around, sometimes the, the advantage of doing that outweighs the um, uh, you know the disadvantages, and so uh, that that could have been a situation here where perhaps they were tankering gas, and they just had a whole heck of a lot of fuel, and they didn't need to divert um, right away. But your point about at what point do you say, okay, we're going to get frustrated and tired and fatigued? Why don't we just uh, get out of here and go somewhere else? I don't know. Well, I well, think that's a nice uh, comment on personal limitations as well, especially for those of us who 
maybe don't fly as often. Um, it's nice to know what those, you know, if you know yourself well enough to know that if you're going to be doing that multiple times in a row, and even if there is a good chance that eventually it's going to be right for you to get in at your destination, um, if you know that you start to become susceptible to the monotony of it and doing the same thing over and over again, and you're better off in a better place in your own mind, going someplace else with a fresh set of eyes on things. Um, I think that's a really smart move. All right. So I want to comment on something. Don't be mad at me, Luke, but the 737 MAX is the most modern aircraft on the 737 family. And if other 737s are getting in, I find it very hard to really think that 737 MAX that has probably has a HUD or Nautiland system is not getting in. So I would think it's probably more like a 73500 or older 400, 500, which is much older technology. So I don't know about the 737 MAX. Not that I'm being nitpicky. Um, well, what if it were one of those situations, Dana, where the it was a ragged ceiling and and the wind was blowing, you know, not in a max. The, it was varying the ceiling? Not in a max. It just happened to be. Not, not unless the MAX was on, had some type of MEL that was affecting the uh, the HUD or the Autoland capability of the HUD. I mean, yeah. 737s, the, new, the newer ones, all most of them, unless Southwest for some reason did not put the HUDs in there, which I find hard to believe. Um, that is the most modern aircraft out there for the 737 family. So that airplane is going to be able to go down to zero, zero, right? So I, if the uh, if there is an approach that allows them to do that. Well, yeah, true, but still. I was actually just looking at Dallas, but I don't know if I can... I don't, know if, they have I don't know if they do or approaches. not. I don't know if they do or not, but uh, anyways, that's just me being nitpicky. As far as uh, how many approaches, I agree with you, Jeff, that um, it's going to be based on how much fuel you have on board the aircraft and how much they've planned for. Um, the monotony of doing the same approach over and over, maybe try a different approach, try to get in. Um, but it, the limitation factor is definitely going to be um, what what your fuel state is and what your alternates are and how far they are away and what what or how much it's going to take you to get there and still have enough to go to your alternate plus the 45 minutes worth of reserve. So uh, if you're tankering and or have extra fuel on board, of course, you can, you know, choose as many approaches you, as you choose. Uh, so certainly um, fatigue, I mean, it, it really depends on where in the day it is. Are we talking about the first flight in? You know, the guys are used to, at at uh, Southwest used to doing three, four, five legs a day. That's what they're used to. So if it's the first leg, I very highly doubt that the fatigue becomes an issue. So, you know, there 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 are certain uh, parameters in here that we just don't know. Um, but uh, you know, a, a modern day airliner, unless it has an MEL on it. I would be very surprised if it's not so, able to get in. I'm looking at Love Field's approaches right now, and I only see Cat 1 approaches. I could be wrong on that because sometimes I don't have all that information. I think, you know, that's, I, I, I believe that. There are those kind of airports, a lot of times they don't have the. Yeah, it's not Dallas Fort Worth, it's Love approaches. Field. Yeah. It's a little bit smaller. So, I, I mean, I think that answers, I mean, to a certain extent, you know, if it's Cat 1. Everybody else is getting in. Maybe this guy was just really unlucky. And every time he broke out at Cat 1, it was couldn't see anything. Maybe, and I've had this happen to me when I had the uh, check ride that I was going through, um, maybe his position on a seat wasn't 
as such to allow him the best visibility. So mm-hmm. uh, that's certainly a consideration as well because I tend to sit a little bit low and a little bit, you know, a little bit of re- recline. Like I sit here in my seat, right, you know, when I'm driving, when I'm flying, when I'm sitting here on the radio, uh, well, not radio, but uh, podcast, I tend to sit back and a little bit low. So if I know that I'm shooting an approach that's going to be down to minimums or close to it, I'll tend to adjust my seat up and forward so that I'm, you know, we have an aiming dot that puts your eye in the right position. So that way you have the best vantage point to see. So maybe this person just wasn't set up properly. Maybe they had a new FO. Maybe it was a low time captain. There are a lot of things that could yeah. cause, cause all these different, uh, this go around with this one guy. So a lot of variables uh, a lot that of we variables. just aren't privy to, right. to know why. Exactly. It is unusual, though. That's for sure. Very. I've never gone. I've barely gone around once. I mean, I think I've gone around. Let's see one, two. I think I've gone around six times in my entire flying career. First one was in Toronto. Never forget it. Yeah. That's it. Six. That's it. Six. Wow. Six go arounds. I'm not. I'm not talking about. I'm talking about my airline career. I'm not talking about my GA career. Interesting. Okay, uh, Nick. Do you have anything to say, or think we covered it well? Uh, you covered it fine, actually. Um, we don't have a restriction in my airline. I was looking to see if there was any guidance. and I... well, We don't have any restriction on the number of no. approach attempts either. I, I think no. it's just based yeah, it's left. on fuel. You know, fuel, fuel, ultimately. Yeah. It's left to the cap. And then, you know, having enough to get to your alternate. destination alternate. Yeah. Yep. Plus 45 after Plus that. Plus 45, yep. All right. Uh Dan, somewhat related, speaking of uh, go-arounds. Hey, APG crew, it's Dan Renner here from somewhere very near KFSD. I've been living with APG syndrome since about APG 160 in mid-2015. A lot of uh, APG sufferers today on the Today Show. And uh, have only recently and unfortunately been forced into slight withdrawals by a crazy work schedule. So at the time of writing, I'm about five episodes behind. Assuming everything went smoothly with the final checks and paperwork, congrats a bit late to Captain Dana. Yay, Captain Dana. Thank you. Appreciate it. Yesterday, I had a good laugh at myself while watching a go-around. As I was leaving my workplace in Sioux Falls, some crazy 30-plus mile-per-hour winds belonging to a small thunderstorm started blowing through the city. And I thought to myself, if I go to the airport, I may get to see a go-around during a busy time of arrivals. I drove to Foxtrot Sierra Delta, Sioux Falls, and parked at a good viewing location near the runway 33 end as a FedEx 737-500. No, that can't be. No, oh, that was a flight number. Okay. Uh, FedEx Flight 735 was on final for runway 15. I was watching the FedEx Boeing 757-200 approach from 2 to 3 miles out, while reminding the crew what they can always do. Sure enough, at about one mile out, I was literally singing, You can always always go around. Wrong key. (laughs) Coming down. Come on, everybody, sing along. (laughs) Oh it's always goodness. a mistake when I ask you guys to assume <laughs> because of the latency. <laughs> no, the, other than the latency is fine. 
anyway, when I saw the 757 cargo rocket roll right and climb off the approach, I later found the 30 minutes of live ATC audio, including the event, uh, and heard the tower controller advise FedEx 735 upon landing clearance that low-level wind shear advisories were in effect and that an Allegiant A320 also went around right in front of FedEx as well. The FedEx pilot advised on the subsequent departure handover that they just completed a wind shear escape maneuver. The FedEx flight went and held for a few 10-mile leg laps as the tower controller reported a microburst alert with 35-knot gains over the runway and then later more wind shear advisories for plus or minus 25-knot swings until the winds calmed down. I realized that yesterday's string of a few go-arounds are more typical at a high-traffic airport that handles frequent thunderstorms. But with the time of day here, it was some of the busiest controller activity and most eventful aircraft operations we see besides our local 114th Fighter Wing Air National Guard F-16s flying tactical approaches. My questions are, would Acme and Acme Red also call the go-around in this scenario a wind shear escape maneuver? Is the Boeing 757 rocket nickname a well-known nickname? When I see them take off from uh, Sioux Falls in the mornings, they climb impressively. So I think of them as FedEx cargo rockets. Clear skies. And this again from Dan Renner in South Dakota. So who wants to start with this one? Well, I think that was probably their company's name for the maneuver they flew and the pilot probably, because sometimes you're not quite prepared to put the white words out on the radio. I suspect he called it what they have on their manuals rather than what we would call it, which is doing a wind shear go around. I mean, you don't even have to say you're doing a wind shear go around. You just have to say just going around. go around. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, I suspect they just, he just fell into, uh, they, they may have even briefed it. Right, let's cover the wind shear escape maneuver. So he probably had that in his head when he was hitting the transmit button. But I think that there is a possibility that they actually did get a wind shear and they oh, yeah. did actually oh, perform think, a wind shear escape. Yeah, I think that's yeah. quite likely. Uh, I just think the radio call was probably the correct one. Yeah, I don't think I would say we just completed a wind shear escape maneuver. I would have said, you know, we're going around for wind shear. And then I would say, Dana, Pi Rep, yeah. exactly. wind shear. And I would you know, also, put a, yeah, yeah, describe the wind conditions for the following aircraft. Exactly right. Exactly. Yeah, they hammer that on us, you know, in the simulator when we do the wind shear escape maneuver practices that, uh, you know, they won't let us go on to anything else until we say, uh, we have a Pi Rep. Uh, well, wind shear, we encountered, you know, <laughs> okay, now we can move on. And that's exactly what I was thinking, Jeff, is that uh, in this, I think they kind of confused and put everything together. It really was, should have been just going around and then, you know, come back with a pirate as to what happened and, mm -hmm. and why they went around. So, But have you ever been in a situation like this where you've actually encountered a wind shear and uh, it's it's hard to come up with words sometimes to say. Yeah, like I'm dying and not. You feel like you're in some type of foreign com country. Yeah. No, I've had actually had that in Denver, which is very common for us, um, mm -hmm. where we had a, a a guidance situation, which of course we're supposed to follow, and we did. And uh, ATC said, "Well, what are you doing?" And we said, "Well, we're going around." Okay. Why? State reason. <laughs> Pirate. That's not how yeah. it came out, though. It's like, uh, <laughs> blah, 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 Acme, we're going around, we get a blah, 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 blah
<laughs> it's terrifying. We were going to die. Totally gonna we die. were going to nosedive. We're, 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 we're at, we're at 8,000 feet, which is 3,000 feet above the ground with absolutely no chance of ground contact. Good thing. You know, the auto throttles and auto power were on, so we just kind of flew right through it. And it was a momentary. It was, you know, like a two-second whoop, whoop, mm-hmm. you know, uh, wind shear head, wind shear head. And uh, we can get the whoop, whoop. I'm sorry, I sat off the wrong. But uh, we got that, and so our initial reaction was to go ahead and and uh, go go around, and, and ATC kind of queried us immediately and said, well, what are you guys doing? Uh, <laughs> we're going around. Say the reason. Well, give me a minute here, pal. It's not it's what I really <laughs> want to, to say. Right now. <laughs> but we need to know right thoughts. now. What is going on? All right. Well, we're in windshear. <laughs> we're getting a windshear yeah. indication. We're going around. Like right in that moment, does it really matter? Like you're going around? It doesn't happen like they say. No. It, it never does. Yeah. It doesn't. Matter. And they're just trying to do their paperwork. Yeah. Okay. Why, why is Delta go? I mean, Acme going around. Who? Acme. Uh, I don't know. Maybe Delta was in front of you. Yeah, I think so. It was a, actually it was a uh, had to have been. Uh huh. Yeah. Um, I never said that. <laughs> I didn't either. What? It will be edited. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll edit this part. Yeah, out. I'm sure. Maybe. Uh, let's see. Is the Boeing 757 rocket nickname a well-known nickname? I've never heard of. Well, I mean, I've I've heard people say that the 757 is like a rocket, but I don't know if I've ever heard it as an official nickname i think it's a pretty appropriate name for anybody it is really the uh the rocket was <laughs> an old steam engine built in 1829 so i think it's grand a grand name yeah so while you guys were talking about go-arounds in denver nick was just researching other things that had the nickname rocket that might be somewhat derogatory yeah, uh, so that he could no way you can... red red rocket you know me too well <laughs> I could see you. I've been sitting here quietly watching. Yes, I, I wish you had sent me a very, message. Very intent on uh, Steph. I wish you had sent me some kind of a message. I would have just put him in mute. <laughs> yeah. Put him in mute. Like, yeah. Dang it. Sorry. <laughs> oh well. HR failure. Yeah. All right. Uh, thanks, Dan, for your comments, and um, hopefully we answered your question. And we do apologize once again for the APG syndrome. And I think it would be a nice time now to hear this week's installment of Plain Tales. The old pilot's playing tales on wings of gossamer. The dream of flight never really started with men wanting to build complicated machines and clamber into them to take to the skies. It started with the idea of mimicking the birds, with strapping wings onto our arms and flying with them into the vaulted heavens higher and higher, but perhaps not as high as Icarus, the son of Daedalus of ancient Greek mythology, who climbed high enough to melt the wax, holding his wings together, and tumbling into the sea he drowned. Similar tales of failed flight on man-made wings have occurred throughout the last 2,000 years or so. Around AD 60, a winged actor attempted to liven up a party held by Roman Emperor Nero, only to fall to his death. Shockingly, this wasn't even considered a particularly odd occurrence at the time. 
The great artist and engineer Leonardo da Vinci is often credited as the first to propose a reasonable flying machine in 1490, a giant bat-shaped craft that used both the pilot's arms and legs to power the wings. Though the aircraft was never built, it was a remarkable achievement considering the knowledge of the day, but modern examination of the design has concluded that it would not have flown either. Other incidents followed, with would-be aviators leaping off mosques, cathedrals, castle walls, and even the Eiffel Tower, with nothing more than wood, string, and feathers attached to their arms, and many, like Icarus, died. Of the fifty attempts documented in Clive Hart's The Prehistory of Flight, as many as a dozen may have actually flown or glided for a few brief moments, but eventually all realised that a man's arms would never have the strength to hold them aloft. Artificial wings weren't the only methods employed by early aviation pioneers. The Chinese have a love of kites that goes back to 1000 BC. Various accounts tell of men taking to the air strapped to these devices. When the explorer Marco Polo returned from China, he claimed to have seen drunken sailors hoisted up into the air on large kites. For what reason is not quite clear, but I guess it was an ancient version of Hold My Beer. A Japanese tale from the late 16th century tells how the legendary bandit Hishikawa Goemon, an oriental version of Robin Hood, was suspended from a large kite and flown by his accomplices into a heavily guarded castle. So, for those wishing to soar like an eagle, it was back to the drawing board, and it would be those less-than-elegant machines that would eventually take us aloft. But despite the success of engine-powered flights, many still believe that man could fly under his own power. We fast-forward to more recent history, when in the 1920s we see Frederick Gerhardt in his unlikely-looking seven-winged machine that resembled a Venetian blind on steroids and mounted on a bicycle, pedal his way into the history books. Mount Cook Field in Dayton, Ohio, was where he apparently took to the air, initially towed by a motor car, but then, with his bicycle powering a propeller, he was apparently able to fly for short hops of around 20 feet, rising a couple of feet into the air. In Germany, the authorities generally agree that the first actual flight occurred in 1929 when an athlete named Krauss, aided by a bungee elastic cord for takeoff, flew a full 250 yards. But it was several years later, in 1934, that the German helicopter pioneer Engelbert Zaska built a large pedal powered monoplane. This machine had a span of about 66 feet and it first flew at Tempelhof Airport in Berlin for about the same distance as the wingspan. The very next year, Helmut Hassler and Franz Willinger flew their craft, the HV-1 Muskelflieger, or Muffli for short. Their takeoff was also aided by a bungee launch cord, but once airborne, it was able to keep going for over 770 yards, a flight of 50 seconds. 
These flights were competing for a prize offered by the Frankfurt Polytechnical Society of 5,000 marks for the first man-powered flight to complete a closed circuit around 2.500 metres apart. Herr Willinger noted that We must of course subtract the effects of the catapult start are about 165 feet and the final glide are 246 feet, but you can say that they were powerfully successful. The drive for further study into man-powered flight was provided to a great extent by such prizes, as much as the competition and desire for knowledge. A great benefactor was the Latvian industrialist and inventor Henry Kramer. Henry's father emigrated to England and his son joined him in the family plywood and chipboard fabrication business. His flair for innovation and invention was much valued and the processes that Henry developed helped to construct such diverse things as the de Havilland mosquito bomber and glass fibre reinforced epoxy resin. He had a great interest in aviation, and in conversation with friends one day, it was suggested that man could fly, if only someone would put up a prize for it. Henry Kramer volunteered immediately, and so began his long association with the Royal Aeronautical Society, and over the next 27 years, his personal sponsorship led to the construction of many aircraft. The first of Kramer's big prizes to be won was for flying a figure-of-eight course around two markers a mile apart, starting and ending at a height of at least 10 feet. The first officially authenticated takeoff and landing by a man-powered aircraft was made in late 1961 by Derek Piggott in Southampton University's man-powered aircraft rather unimaginatively named Sumpack. Derek was no athlete, but actually the chief flying instructor at Lasham Gliding Centre. He was an experienced stunt and movie pilot who flew the Shuttleworth box kite in and in the film Blue Max when, in a brilliant scene, he threaded his way through a viaduct in a red Fokker triplane. Out of 40 attempts in the sum pack, the best achieved was 650 metres. At the same time, the employees of de Havilland Aircraft Company formed a club and together they built the Hatfield Puffin, which managed a very reasonable 908 metres. John Wimpenny was the pilot and peddler, an aeronautical engineer who worked on an amazing array of aircraft from the Mosquito to the Hawkers Italy HS125. He held the record for some 10 years, but the prize was still up for grabs. Part of the puffin was reused in the Liverpool University's liver puffin, but the reincarnation didn't do nearly as well as the original. By now the prize had been increased to £50,000, and the list of aircraft built grew rapidly, with attempts being made as far afield as Austria, the United States, Poland, the USSR, France, Belgium, Scotland and Japan, who came very close, with Nihon University's Stork B. 
They established a new world record for man-powered flight when student Takashi Kato covered the distance of 2,094 metres at Shumofusa Naval Air Base near Tokyo. Sadly, they didn't manage to complete the figure of eight course after touching a wingtip on the ground about three-quarters of the way around. It was American Paul McCready who finally made the breakthrough with a craft called the Gossamer Condor in 1977. McCready was a U.S. naval pilot who had a master's in physics and a Ph.D. in aeronautics from Caltech. He had become an inventor and was also a three-time winner of the U.S. National Open Class Soaring Championship. He created a clever design which employed a pusher propeller and a canard similar to that used by the Wright brothers whose forward elevator concept flew some 75 years before. He also copied their wing warping technique to get around the turns in the figure of eight. The machine was huge with a span of 96 feet but it only weighed 70 pounds, that's 32 kilos. It was constructed using piano wire, aluminium tubing and carbon fibre, with the wing ribs being made of expanded polystyrene. The entire structure was then wrapped in a thin, transparent plastic mylar, the same material that was used to make the tapes of old-fashioned tape recorders. The pilot he chose was Brian Allen, a self-taught hang glider pilot who was also a keen bicyclist. At only 26, the fit young man only weighed 141 pounds, but he was the essential member of the team who, for 6 minutes and 22 seconds, would sweat out the journey to victory. The course was laid out at Minter Field in Shafter, California, and there were 10-foot-high markers at the start and finish to ensure the Condor was high enough to qualify for the prize. Powering the 12-and-a-half-foot-long propeller, Alan was approaching the end when suddenly a voice punched through the sweltering cockpit's plastic skin. Ten feet! Climb to twelve! Climb! He made the final effort, and they were through. The prize was theirs. Now a bigger goal lay ahead of them. The second Kramer Prize was for £100,000, which at the time was worth $222,000, the largest ever cash prize in the history of aviation. To win it, they would need to cross the English Channel by flying from England to France. For this, McCready had to build a version of the Gossamer Condor that could be dissembled and transported to England. Named the Gossamer Albatross, it was very similar to the Condor, and early on a calm morning in June 1979, it was assembled near Folkestone on the south coast of England. Ahead lay around 22 miles of water. Allen started working to hit the required rate of between 77 and 93 pedal rotations every minute, something that he would have to maintain for the next 169 minutes. Slowly and silently, with the huge propeller turning less than twice a second, the Gossamer Albatross got airborne. 
whilst the aircraft's progress looks smooth and languid. Within the plastic enclosure, for Alan, it was anything but. As the warmth of the morning started to move the air, the smooth conditions gave way to turbulence which increased the drag on the airframe. He was bucked around on unpredictable up-and-down drafts and the headwinds rose to over seven miles an hour. At one point he had to make a large course correction to avoid the turbulence following the stern of an enormous tanker ploughing up the channel. He maintained his height by using the acoustic sensors from a Polaroid SX-70 camera and communicated by radio, but that failed not long into the attempt, so for most of the flight he had to rely on signals and head nods. He was maintaining the equivalent of a bicyclist going at 21 miles an hour for nearly three hours without rest. The technique that they thought was the most efficient was to fly only a couple of feet above the water, as going higher required up to 10% more effort, but the turbulence was defeating Alan. He wasn't going to make it. To save the aircraft, the crew asked him to climb up so that they could attach a tow line and pull the albatross to land. With a heavy heart, he climbed the enormous craft up to 12 feet, but... Miraculously, he found a smooth layer of air and, with the going much easier, decided to continue. However, the flight was taking longer than anticipated and Brian Allen had run out of water. Now suffering from dehydration and agonising muscle cramps, he was only able to use one leg, but at last the French coast came into sight. He was so tired and in such pain he thought he might have to just pile the craft into the rocky shore, but with one last superhuman effort he doggedly turned to fly along the shoreline. After going for another quarter of a mile he came around a breakwater and spotted a smooth beach. With the holidaymakers scattering he lined up to land. A quarter of a mile off Cap Grines, Paul McCready saw the prop slowly stop and felt relief that it was all over, but perhaps surprisingly no great rush of elation. Ever since first sketching the design on the back of an envelope, he said it was obvious that we could do the flight. It had just been a question of how and when. It was nice to succeed on the first try, a miracle really, quite surprising. While the Kramer Prizes did not lead to the adoption of human-powered flight as a popular form of travel, they did spur innovation. For designers, these machines offered the most exciting of challenges. Ultra-lightweight materials have revolutionised techniques of construction and producing aircraft with huge wingspans and tiny all-up weights. The aircraft of the 1970s were so flimsy they could only be flown in near-perfect conditions. The machines being built now can cope much better. We have reached a transitional period in human-powered flight. The basic research has been done and this next stage will lead to more practical aircraft which can be built by a group of enthusiasts and flown perhaps as a sport. For the pilot, the human factors involved are unique. 
offering a challenge not found in any other branch of aviation. Paul McCready's experiments in low-speed flight fed into the development of solar-powered planes. Facebook and Airbus are both currently experimenting with high-altitude pseudo-satellites, capable of transmitting broadband to remote areas of the world, whose lineage can be traced back to the lightweight man-powered aircraft. Henry Kramer, whose prizes motivated this odd corner of aviation, was a self-effacing man who avoided the limelight. It's doubtful that human-powered flight would have been achieved and development to the extent it has without his encouragement and support. The Royal Aeronautical Society honoured him with a championship. In 1975 and in 1988, the Fédération Aéronautique Internationale presented him with its highest award, the Gold Air Medal, later making him a Companion of Honour. Paul McCready's honours are almost too many to list. From amongst the 49 noteworthy awards and honours he received, he was given the Collier Trophy from the National Aeronautics Association, the Reed Aeronautical Award, the Engineer of the Century Gold Medal, the Limburg Award, the Gold Medal and Distinguished Service Award from the FIA, the National Air and Space Museum Trophy, the Walker Prize, and he was enshrined into the National Aviation Hall of Fame. He was listed in Flying Magazine's list of 51 heroes of aviation and in Time Magazine's list of the century's 100 greatest minds. Wow. Very interesting plain tales. Thank you, Nick. <laughs> I found it hard to really get to grips with manpower flight. I knew I had to do it because it was one of those things I think, you know, you just got to cover, try and cover every aspect. But finding a, a way to do it in, interestingly. Oh, hi, Taco. I see Taco. Mm -hmm. What was a challenge because. Uh, <laughs> I must admit, the idea of putting a bicycle and a propeller together with a set of wings, I don't find the most interesting thing in the world. But actually, the story is quite good. Yeah, I'm wondering if, um, I can't recall which one it was or if it was one of those that you mentioned in the story, but they're in the uh, Dulles International Airport in the terminal we use, um, where you, the center portion where you go down the escalators to the train, there is one of those. Uh, human-powered airplanes hanging up. Oh, right. Uh, the Albatross that went across the channel is in the Odvahezi. Uh, so that's where you can see it. It's the one with DuPont written on the side because mm -hmm. they sponsored Yeah, I remember seeing that one. Yeah, But the um, one that's in Atlanta, I, I don't know. No, it's actually in a, a Dulles International uh, Terminal, oh, sorry, but it's in the terminal itself, not the, uh, not the museum. But th what's remarkable is the size of the damn things I mean, they've got a yeah. huge wingspan, and then they they weigh next to nothing. I mean, that's mm -hmm. ridiculous. Yeah. I'm looking at the pictures of them right now. It's, they're pretty incredible. Mm. Hey, this is a new hobby for you. I well, mean, I'm intrigued, yeah, you know, take off in something <laughs> kind of looking and trying across the English Channel. Yeah. Seems like uh, kind like of a real bag. Yeah. Yeah. Well, there's actually <laughs> an annual competition now between uh, people who, uh, uh, you know, compete. Uh, racing their man-powered aircraft around a course, 
And uh, there are still some uh, Kramer prizes yet to be won because uh, whilst uh, the, the big distances have gone, uh, the courses now need to be flown quite fast. So they're, they're looking for speed rather than just endurance. Wow. Interesting. See, I, I would um, be happy to pilot the the craft. I don't really want to build it or design it. Well, there are actually plenty of lady um, and they, now they've stopped calling it manpowered. They now call it person powered or something. People powered. People powered. Because <laughs> yeah. there are plenty of lady pilots that do exactly that. Yeah. Very cool. Very nice. Well, thank you, Nick, again, for an awesome plane tale. Uh, let's see. We'll move on to uh, somebody named Liz. Sent us some a uh, link to a an article oh, from San Francisco.cbslocal.com. Why don't you do this one? Sure. Steph? I can do this one. So this is um yeah, from CBS Local in San Francisco. Um it says at an age when many people might find it difficult to drive or even walk across the street, Maeda Beringer was still piloting airplanes. Now at age 100, she is still fierce, feisty, funny, and her lifelong love of flying is as strong as ever. I don't know where it came from, but I always wanted to fly, she said. When Maeda Beringer was born in May 1918, aviation was in its infancy, and the Wright Brothers' historic first powered flight at Kitty Hawk was a mere 15 years in the past. My dad wanted to know what I really wanted to do, and I said, fly, Beringer remembers. He said to me, you've never been up in an airplane. How do you know you're going to like it? I said, well, I've dreamed it for ages. So he said, okay, let's go for a flight. With that first flight, Maeda was hooked. It was an open cockpit, and it was wonderful. I never came down from that flight, she said. Maeda earned her wings. First came her pilot's license in 1945, a major accomplishment at a time when few women flew, but uh, one she couldn't share with her first husband, who died in a plane crash at the end of World War II. Uh, so then they've got pictures there. And it says, years later, she met and married Commander William Beringer, the man who would later become her co-pilot in life and in flight. He flew jets off carriers, and I love that, she recalls. I asked him why I couldn't fly and land on a carrier, and he just laughed at me. Uh, as a commercial pilot and then full-time flight instructor, Maeda spent post-war years flying high, often bringing her growing family along on cross-country flights. She even trained in a military jet to break the speed of sound or to break the sound barrier in 1961. The pilot let me fly the plane, the airplane. Perhaps I shouldn't say this publicly because it may not be good for the pilot, she confessed. Six years ago, at the age of 94, uh, Beringer decided she no longer had the strength to pilot a plane on her own. I think not being able to fly the plane herself more hurt more than anything else. She just loves it, said friend and pilot Pat Gregory. On her 100th birthday last month, she received a gift from uh, fellow women pilots and soon found herself back in a cockpit high above the South Bay, a co-pilot uh, emerita, so to speak. Uh, Maeda Beringer looks out from her co-pilot seat over the... Oh, that's just the caption for the picture. Sorry. <laughs> it looks like the... Uh, yeah, it looked like part of the article. Uh, yeah. From the moment the light plane lifted off, Maeda was in heaven again. I think it's the freedom of being up there all by yourself and you are in control. After her birthday flight was over, the veteran pilot confessed to being a bit overcome by elation during takeoff. I loved it. I started crying as we took off, she said. Looking back on the many decades where she soared above the clouds, Beringer admits she would have liked to try her hand at aerobatics, perhaps as a stunt pilot. I can't imagine sitting on the ground my, all my life, she laughed, adding, that's an impossibility. Wow. It's good stuff. 100 years old. Yeah. 
She looks, she's like tiny in the, uh, it's like a 182 or something, 172 that they're in. I'm not sure. Yeah. Picture. But she had her, I guess she had her own plane, the power puff. <laughs> yeah. That that, there's a picture there of her in front of the airplane, uh, whatever airplane that is. I'm not sure. Some kind of a high wing, maybe a Cessna. I can't tell yeah. from the front. Power puff. <laughs> That's cool. What a great story. Yeah. I love that one. Thank you for finding that, Liz. Orson writes in, Orson here. I was interested in a, a few episodes back listening to your advice to a young trainee on how to gauge the runway perspective for landing, and you wisely told him to look along the nose down to the far end of the runway. Quick question on that. If you're flying an approach in poor visibility, say 600 meters, but not below the airfield Cat 1 minimums, and with no Autoland or HUD, where would you be fixing your sight line in this case? Tailwinds, clear skies, and warm beer. Or what? Warm beer. I was gonna say. <laughs> be. um... Orson, I can't tell where Orson's from. He must warm be warm beer. That's just not right. Yeah, I mean, oh, not you're even... not going to enjoy England, are you? <laughs> but it's, it's not warm. <laughs> no, it's, no, it's no, Nick. I'm going to enjoy your house because that's where everything is. <laughs> but he has a nice we cold fridge. Warm beer. I'm sorry, mate. Well, but yeah, <laughs> I don't care if I have to drink warm whiskey, but not warm beer. <laughs> Fair enough. So, uh, what would your advice be, Dana, for Orson, uh, as far as you know, you you're flying a an approach, the visibility mm-hmm. is not great, and you know you break out, and you know, I guess what he's saying is, what if you can't see the end of the runway? But well, and, and one of the biggest things that that we're taught in the sim is to to continue to scan. So. What you want to do is spend two-thirds of time inside, one-third outside uh, in the outside environment so that you can go ahead and transition to it as long as you have approach lights in sight. So if you don't have approach lights in sight at minimums, well, what are you going to do, Jeff? You're going to go around, right? You can always go. No. Go around. You can, yeah, I'm terrible at singing, so I already, already have a terrible voice. How about this? But so anyways, the, uh, the reality is, is that if you don't have visual environment, you're going to have to go around. Uh, if you have a, a, a non-visual, you know, if you stop picking up approach lights, you can continue down, continue down until you have the runway environment in sight or 100 feet. Is that right? Yeah, it's 100 feet. Mm-hmm. So you can continue down if you have the approach lights in sight. But if you do not have the runway environment in sight, you have to go around. So what I would do is continue my scan on my instruments to make sure that I don't, and, and one of the tendencies that we have as pilots is if we just transition to the outside world, we tend to fly high. We kick kick the autopilot off and we'll tend to over, you know, lose the glide slope below us and fly away from it. So um, that's one of the mitigation uh, procedures or policies or, or ways of uh, techniques to, to mitigate that tendency to fly away from the uh, the, the glide slope and continue landing in the touchdown zone. And as far as what you focus on, um, you're not going to have, especially in a cat three approach, you're not going to have a whole lot to focus on. You probably have, you know, RVR in, in between 500 to a thousand, uh, excuse me, 600 to a thousand, not 500, um, 600 to a thousand, somewhere around there. So it doesn't give you a whole lot of runway to look at, but you try to focus on the entire runway environment. Now, the policy at ACME is if you're doing a CAT 2 or CAT 3 approach at all, and CAT 2 being the, the critical one because it used to be that you can click the autopilot off and hand fly the airplane, CAT 2, 
Now it's required by the policy of the company that if, in fact, you are landing in Cat 2, Cat 3 conditions, that you continue through with an auto land approach. So you're really just monitoring and making sure that you have visual uh, visual representation of the runway, that you have centerline uh, lighting, that you have approach lighting, that you have uh, um, edge lighting. And, of course, uh, on most runways, you're going to have uh, uh, touchdown zone lighting as well. So... And it's pretty bright. So that's what you're focusing on. And uh, there's no, not the traditional looking down the runway, trying to figure out how your flare is going to look. Um, you just fly the airplane. Now, if you come down to cat one minimums, you know, as I said, just go ahead and scan in and out. And that's that's how we how we focus. And then I try to focus down the runways as, as far as I possibly can without losing the runway environment and getting lost in the clouds, per se. The danger... Uh, that I have uh, um, always taught my students when I was an instructor was um, that uh, if you normally are able to look all the way down the runway and you perceive the horizon and the point at the end of the runway to be at a particular position on your windshield, when you've got low visibility, that position is shorter because you, you can't see enough down the runway. So it's closer to you. If you put that position at the same point in your windshield, you're going to duck low, and there that's a significant danger. So um, Dana is quite right when he says you've got to refer to your instruments a lot more when you're in those situations, and uh, you take all the other aids you can, like uh, Pappy's and like any instrument aids you've got. But uh, for me, and, and he is also quite right in that when the visibility is poor, you do tend to shy away from the ground, but... Uh, I think that's more an airliner thing. I would suspect that perhaps a GA thing, but I'm not an expert on GA, so I don't know that. But the thing I would say is um, because now your perceived horizon is below the normal horizon you're used to because of the lowered visibility, you do have a tendency to duck low, and that's something you have to be cautious of. And so long as you learn these things uh, and you um, you know practice regularly, you can overcome them. It's not a problem. And with sufficient experience, uh, we all learn to do that. In my personal experience, um, when something is below cat one, uh, but not requiring, well, he says if, but not below the airfield cat one minimum. So if it's at cat one or higher, usually uh, you will have enough visibility to see the end of the runway. And so you kind of just treat it just like any other time you're landing. But uh, I guess if you have an obscuration, you could be technically under the under the ceiling and still see what you're required to see at the beginning of the runway. And as both captains mentioned there, um, just keep that cross check going until the very end and then just stare directly below you and then you'll pound it on. <laughs> when all else fails. Yeah. <laughs> just reach down and find that runway. <laughs> you know, in, in one of the point, important points here is we're talking as, as professional airline pilots and what we see you know, the turbojet aircraft. When, now, when you talk about GA, of course, I know Steph can address this directly because, uh, you know, she's an instrument-rated pilot. But as an instrument-rated uh, um, instructor, um, it's pretty much the same thing that I would teach my students in GA is that you keep your scan going. Now, if you're flying an older type of aircraft like a Cessna 172 or Piper Warrior, we have the old-fashioned needles they become very sensitive when you get to 
towards the end of the approach. So uh, the biggest thing that I've always taught uh, my students, and, and this is me stepping off the airline pedestal to the flight instructor pedestal for GA, uh, I would always teach my students small, small corrections, keep your scan going. Because that's what's gonna what's gonna get you in. Now I I don't know any GA airplane that can go to Cat three, Cat two. Uh, it's all Cat one, and uh, it's uh, you know the the biggest threat to GA airplanes is that transition, and also making sure you don't go below minimums. Because if you go below minimums, that's when you start hitting t- tree top tops, yeah. and a lot of accidents have been caused by that. Steph, I defer to you now. Uh, the only the only kind of example that I can think of is. Um where you still have your minimum visibility uh, required, but perhaps at the far end of the field, that's where the showers have moved across already. So you really don't have like that infinity horizon and you can't see it. There's something obscuring at that end. Um, But at this point, if you're flying in those conditions, you have quite a bit more experience than someone who's just learning to land for the first time and flying in GA certain like, Dana said, you're not going to be below cat one minimums. You're going to be able to see enough of the runway in front of you to have the same sense of perspective for GA flying. And, and one thing I want to add to that, Steph, is that, and you hit upon it, is, is depending on your experience level, when I was a new instrument rated pilot, I would look at the weather and there were certain minimums I wouldn't wouldn't go through. I mean, like, for example, as a new instrument rated pilot, if the ceilings were less than a thousand feet and less than two miles of visibility, I wouldn't even attempt it. And, and I still I, don't unless I have, I mean, there's no real reason why I have to. Right. So unless it's training so, purpose and I'm flying perhaps with an instructor by myself, there's no real good reason. Yeah. It's no real, no good, good reason, especially having one engine. I mean, when you lose yep. an engine and it's a single engine, you're playing, yeah, you know, not you're saw IMC. There are many nights that I was out there when I was practicing with my airplane, my Piper warrior that I had, I would fly into Fulton, in and out of Fulton County. And they had a very nice ILS approach of course. There's a nice hill at the end of it, uh, or the beginning of it. And you had to be aware of that. But the, the, the reality is, as I became more proficient, I became uh, challenged myself more and more because I felt more and more comfortable, knew my airplane, knew, knew the maintenance on it, and, uh, you know, would go out there and practice down to, you know, 300 foot ceilings because that's, you know, that was making me a better pilot. But there, there are a lot of people out there that just don't need to go and, and, and push it push the envelope that much it's very risky and you know higher minimums are, are much better so that way you don't ever get into um that ga perspective in, in low visibility um you know it's really generally unless it's an absolute emergency don't ever have to get yourself in that situation use higher minimums so one other situation just real quickly where this might apply um a very dark night so you're night flying there's no uh, moonlit structure and you're landing at a uh, smaller airfield that where perhaps the lighting is not the greatest. I've definitely been in that situation before as well. And usually for perspective, then we're we're looking, you know, closer in or perhaps even to the side for landing. Empty field myopia. Yeah. That's, I mean, even like, and Jeff knows this one right off the bat, if you go down to uh, uh, Northwest Regional uh, ECP at night, I mean, you've got a runway in the middle of nothing but darkness, even as professional airline pilots. That is ultra, ultra challenging because all you have is this runway 
and nothing surrounded, but nothing but a black hole. Just black. Black yeah. hole. So general aviation, that's, you know, it's always best uh, even in, you know, it, what we do at the airlines is always back everything up with some type of instrument approach um, if it's available in general aviation that would be the big thing for me to leave with you is that if you're instrument trained or not even instrument trained, if you're familiar with, with approach plates and familiar with approach frequencies, always back yourself up with that information because it only makes it safer for you. Yes. Very good. Thanks Orson. Great question. And I hope we helped you with that, those answers. Blah, blah, blah. All right. I'm going to skip to 13. Uh, CFI John writes in from Kilo Romeo Delta Mike somewhere in Oregon, I'm guessing. He says, longtime listener since around episode 73. I'm working. That was before uh, Dana and I were together for the first time, episode 90. I'm working as a CFI in Oregon uh, or Oregon. I'm just kidding. Oregon working towards my 1500 hour after spending 10 years in the Navy. Spent some sent some another beer jeff sent some feedback a while back via the app but i guess it wasn't received so sorry i don't remember seeing it uh several episodes no, ago he, you he guys re- ignored it don't oh actually that was the one that uh, steph said that's garbage she threw <laughs> it away i think she we <laughs> just get it. hr spoke and that was all there is to it it's not we true listen. john don't <laughs> that's listen not true. to them he knows we're lying <laughs> Several episodes ago, you guys were talking about ATC clearing a plane to land while another airplane was on the runway. What the tower told me while I was going around one time in the Speedy C-152 is that as long as they can maintain at least 3,000 feet separation between aircraft on the runway, they are allowed to clear you to land if it's only small aircraft. If there's ever a meetup to visit, uh, if there is ever a meetup to visit the Evergreen Air and Space Museum water park at Kilo Mike Mike Victor, I'll be there. Another great museum in Oregon is the Erickson Air Museum in the center, Oregon town of Madras. They have lots of World War II aircraft, and all but a couple of them are regularly flown. And again, that's CFI John. Is that uh, Evergreen Evergreen Museum, the one where they have a 747 with the water slides? No, that's a different one. So. Oh, okay. That was yeah, it, it to, is uh, that one. <laughs> that's a perfect use for a Boeing. I thought that's brilliant. I love that. You've expressed your opinion yes. on it before. Have I? Re- no, I surely not. Oh, Museum. Okay. Well, Dang it. I think old Boeing. No, I just wanted to express my counter opinion of how excited we need to go there. <laughs> yeah, it's the one with the 747. Oh, uh, right. Uh, great. Don't feed the trolls. You know. <laughs> ACF, CFI, John, that would actually be an excellent question for uh, the uh, opposing basis folks, but I'm pretty sure that's fairly accurate because I've gone into yeah. Oshkosh many times where you're doing spot landings on the same runway. So in other words, they have three aircraft coming in on the same runway at the same time, just doing spot landings on, on the runway. So it's uh, it's quite an operation if you've never seen anything like that. But uh, I would say uh, uh, opposing bases would absolutely know that answer to that question. Yeah, those dudes know their stuff. They sure do. All right. And finally, last item that we're going to cover on today's show from Rodrigo. Um, he said, uh, my name is Rodrigo. I've been an APG listener for... The last four years or more, I try to keep up today with your show as much as I can. Great show, by the way. 
just started supporting the show through Patreon, which makes me very happy. And you know what, Rodrigo? We feel the same. It makes us very happy oh, as well. Oh, I'm deliriously happy. I'm ecstatic. Um, <laughs> thank you, thank you, thank you. Serious. Wow. That deserves a wow. Wow. Well, you got the original wow. Not, I mean, the real one, not the fake one. Anyway, he says, I want to introduce myself. I'm a Venezuelan ATPL. Started flying in the OOs, the aughts, uh, I guess the early 2000s, on your beloved MD-80 mixed with some DC-9 classic fleet back in Venezuela. After a few years, I decided to migrate to Asia, where I kept on flying the MD-80. There, I had the magnificent opportunity to become a captain on it, my first command. At this time, I would like to congratulate Dana on his command. Truly deserved. Thank you very much. Going back to my story, after a few years in Siam, I moved to the island of Formosa, Taiwan, where I flew the MD-11 as a first officer. After five years in Asia, I decided to migrate to the Middle East, where I'm currently living and flying, joining Acme Maroon Airways as a first officer on the 777. I've never heard them refer to that as that. That's cool. Acme Maroon. Uh, recently culminated uh, in my command training on the 777, enjoying the mixture of the ultra-long-range, short-long-range, short- and freight flying. Did I get that right? ULR, SLR? Is that right? That's super uh, long range, I think. It's super. SLR. Okay. Ultra long range, super long range, short and freight flying. Wow. Quite a quite a mix there. So I'm, I'm guessing from this, he just upgraded to captain on the 777. Is that right? That's what I'm guessing. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. Congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah. Congratulations. Rodrigo, Rodrigo. Congratulations to you as well, sir. And as we mentioned earlier in the show during the... Um, Coffee Fund segment. Uh, Rodrigo is the guy that uh, is has joined the other two uh, folks in the top tier of the um, contributors to the Airline Pilot Guy show. So again, welcome and thank you. He says, wishing you blue skies and tailwinds. Best regards, Rodrigo. All right. Well, thank you, Rodrigo. Yes, and thank yes. you for introducing yourself. Sounds and like, we look forward. Go ahead. Oh, it sounds like quite the flying career so far. Yes, looks like you have a whole bunch of knowledge, uh, not only in various airplanes, but also operating in various parts of the world. And we look forward to hearing from your expertise uh, when we are discussing various things. So uh, send us some feedback, like all the time. Absolutely. And, uh, who, who are the other two top tier uh, guys? Oh, guys? well, you know what? That's a good question. Uh, we have... Uh, the guy that hit, well, I'll first mention Lucas Diamond, the flying Kiwi ah, in oh, New Zealand. Lucas. And he's been in that top tier since, uh, let's see, July of 2016. So basically two years. And the one that holds the record of all of our contributors is Asa Armin of in uh, the beautiful Vancouver. Of course. Um, Canada, yes. And he... Uh, right here, this uh, spreadsheet I'm looking at says that he started in January of 2014. And guess yeah. what? That's when I started using Patreon. Wow. January of 2014. Right so he's been the there. Very beginning. The, t the whole time. And I'm not going to tell you the, the, uh, the sum of money that he's contributed to the Airline Pilot Guy show 
over those four years, but it's a big number. So Asa, you're the man. Thank you very much. You're the man. Yeah. Truly appreciate it. And, uh, and thank you also to flying Kiwi and our new super high. Yeah. (laughs) Our, uh, Hey, I'll buy the beer. (laughs) (laughs) Only only kidding. (laughs) No, he's not. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, let's see that does it. I think we're right. Uh, just shy of the uh, three hour mark. You know what? You want to go ahead and just do it because it's in there and we can say we got all of them. Get it. Okay. Because it's, it's a Nick and Nick special. So this is an interesting one. It, it it involves Airbus. Yes. Um, although not in the way that we would normally talk about Airbus really on, on this show. Uh, he's, this is Chet, Chet, Chet or Chet? Chet. 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 Hi, this is Chet. I found this contest pretty interesting. Airbus is giving away $10,000 in prizes to anyone who submits the best design for a water pump. Here's the link. And then he gives us the link. You know, like he thinks that somebody that listens to this show might actually. Archimedes, uh, he designed quite a good one. Well, but he's not around anymore. Damn, and uh, yeah. I don't think he's going to win. Uh, Do you think you put a patent on that? I don't know. You're just going to uh, borrow his design and submit it to Airbus? Well, yeah, I, I mean, think there are some rules that uh, keep uh, you from doing something like that. Because I actually looked at the uh, contest rules. He said, I considered submitting one that looks like a hand-operated boat pump, but I'm sure Captain Nick would insist that that would be for the Boeing water pump contest. Yeah, exactly right, because they leak. And then he sent us this link, uh, Airbus Challenge, design a water pump for a flying product. The goal of this challenge is to design a water pump that fits the given requirements in order to be installed on one of our flying products. The challenge concerns the availability of a quick-acting electrical water pump Without limitation, linked to absence of specific lubrication. Well, if you don't have specific lubrication, I can I can't imagine that uh, that would be an easy task to design something that would uh, continue to operate. I think some of the requirements I was looking through it has to last uh, the life of this thing. Let's see where is that? I have to scroll down here. Yeah, under mechanics. Ten thousand cycles of ten seconds, or. If the pup's not able to establish the flow in less than 0.2 seconds, cycle duration becomes 10 minutes in continuous operation. I would have to call and go for the uh, Ron Jeremy water pump. Could be. Okay. <laughs> is this, uh, is this, do you think it's a toilet flush? I, you know, I, 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 at first I was thinking of your own jokes, mate. I'm sorry, carry on. <laughs> I, I have a feeling it has to do with, well, uh, you know, I, I wasn't sure. At, at some point, I thought it has something to do with a flush motor. Yeah. But then another point, I thought, well, maybe it's just the, the, the tap uh, at the sink, but I'm not sure. To um, run for 10 minutes, though, in continuous operation. Yeah, I I don't know. Can be used with water, if possible, capability to be used with glycol, glycol, and isopropanol additives. Ooh. So that doesn't sound like it would be a drying the, agent glycol in the, in the uh, flushing mechanism, the toilet. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know. De-icing. Maybe it is glycol. Yeah. You use glycol in de-icing, don't you? Or yes. Yeah. De-icing? yeah. Propylene glycol. But glycol. If I remember what correctly. would that have to do with the uh, the toilet? I don't know. Oh boy. Maybe it does. We can go so many ways with that one. 
Anyway, <laughs> if you want if you want to find out about it, all the different requirements of this pump, uh, which Boy. is uh, powers wow. twenty eight volt direct current, and you have to uh, it has to be less than four kilograms. And uh, general size should from be zero to fifty five degrees centigrade. Jeez, that's a mean. That's a big toilet. range. <laughs> this is not a NASA project. I'm I'm so oh, glad that we saved that we actually did do this. <laughs> Me too. <laughs> Truly. But hey, you'll be happy to know, dear listener, that the uh, the link to this is in the show notes, and then you can yeah, can't wait to see what people suggest. For, yes. And if you do submit a design, please let us know because we want to there be there and, to cheer for you. Well, and as our producer Liz rightly says, if one of our listeners wins, um, we expect a share of of the prize, just a small amount. You know, I, I'm gonna win. Now I looked at the rules here. Ten thousand dollars. <laughs> Ten thousand dollars is the total amount of money they're giving out, including first, second, and third place so the first place winner gets six thousand second place three thousand third place one thousand and i'm thinking um so this is pretty smart airbus gets this very cleverly designed product and they, they don't have to spend a lot of money on it <laughs> no they don't then hire the person who designs it <laughs> if i if i were the designer i would slap a patent on it and then say hey airbus you already oh, think of this a what? We say patent. He says patent. Patent, patent, yeah, potable it's a patent. It's coming from the guy with the Boston <laughs> accent. It might be a Boston. We have the original English accent in the colonies. Come on. Now. Well, you might like to convince yourself you have. We do. <laughs> and we threw the tea. We threw the tea over the uh, over the ship and made the Boston Harbor the original Boston Tea Party. I think the folks on Roanoke Island would disagree with you but yeah anyway. but they didn't exist after 15 what 96 was that oh yeah they, they you mean you killed them all no they just they just disappeared they just oh, disappeared really? uh, so you killed them all <laughs> where else could you get this kind of historical <laughs> banter and accurate i'm sure the airline <laughs> <Island> guy show <laughs> an aviation podcast i should i might add <laughs> All right. Uh, if you want to learn more about the show, and I'm not sure why you would, but <laughs> if you're uh, some kind of a sick person who is still listening to us at this point, gosh, we'll yeah. pray for you. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but if you want to learn more about the show, uh, head over to airlinepilotguy.com, our website, and lots of good stuff over there. We have some apps for your iPhone or Android phone. Information about that also on the website, and we're also on social media. So, Steph, can you tell us about that? I would be delighted to. You can head over to Twitter. Uh, we are at APG Crew on Twitter. Find all of our individual Twitter contact information there if you would like, and interact with us in short 280-character messages or less. If you're a bit more verbose, you can head over to facebook.com slash guy. Share as much as you want there, or as little, and there's other information links, posts to different things, sometimes information about meetups, a lot of good community interaction going on. So hope to see you either on Twitter or Facebook. And speaking of community interaction, including meetups, there's another place uh, we'd like to call Slack. APG listeners, please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news we suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's 
S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo, at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, 1-1, Echo 1. And see you in Slack. Thank you, Hillel. Great seeing you, by the way, this uh, past weekend up in Washington. And finally, we'd like to say we wish you clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care. God bless. Cheers, y'all. Bye, everybody. Hasta la vista. Baby. Good day.